Who am I speaking with? This is the Zodiac speaking. Is there something I can call you that's a little less ominous? Sam. Sam. Is there somewhere we can meet Sam and talk about this? Meet me on top of the Fairmont Hotel without anyone else or I'll jump. Have you any go to the Fairmont Hotel? Sam. Yes. Do you think you need medical care? Medical, not mental. Do you have health problems? I'm sick. I have headaches. Headaches? I have headaches too, but a chiropractor stopped them a week ago. I think I can help you, Sam. <coughs> Sam? How's they're tracing his calls? Sam, we'd like you to know that we are not tracing these calls. It's a long, difficult process and ineffective with these short calls. Sam? Uh-huh? We're not tracing these calls. You have my word. Okay. Sam, you need to tell me what your problem is. I don't want to go to the gas chamber. I have headaches. I kill. I don't get them. That is f***ed up. You want to live, don't you? Well, this is your passport. How long have you been having these headaches? Since I killed a kid. Do you have blackouts? Yes. Do you have fits? No, I just have headaches. Did you attempt to call one other time when F. Lee Bailey was with us two or three weeks ago? Yes. And why did you want to talk to Mr. Bailey? Why do you want to talk to me, Sam? I don't want to be hurt. Why is he calling? I don't want to hey, go to the gas second. chamber. You won't get hurt if you talk to me. You're not going to the gas chamber. I wouldn't think they would ask for capital punishment. We should ask the district attorney. Do you want me to do that, Sam? Do you want me to talk to the district attorney? Well, what was that, Sam? I did not say anything. We heard a scream. That was my headache. You sound like you're in a great deal of pain. My head aches. I'm so sick. Oh. I'm going to kill them. Oh, oh, okay. Fantastic. Sam. Uh, Let's meet and talk, just us. Okay. How about Old St. Mary's Church in Chinatown? No. In front of the Daily City St. Vincent de Paul at 10.30. I'll see you there. God, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 331, 
Zodiac. And if you're hearing our silky smooth voices, it's because we've made a little bit of an upgrade. Yes, we are using our new microphones for the first time, so please bear with us if there's any weird volume issues. (laughs) Not that we haven't had our fair share (laughs) with regular old mics, but... However many years, it's going to be a learning process. Right get now. this to be like a consistent level of quality. <laughs> it, it really is shocking the lack of time we were willing to invest in just making sure the levels are okay before hitting record. Nah, not important. <laughs> <laughs> well, the technical side of our podcast has always been a disaster. And so I guess this is a perfect segue right into saying... We're not really going to talk about the technical aspects of this movie, Mm -hmm. which we never do, but with Fincher and specifically Zodiac, the technical side of it is a big deal. This was his first time working digitally, which completely altered his career, although there are segments of the film done in film, done on film, (laughs) but it's the first time he tried digital. I have some issues with that in this particular film, and we'll we'll get into it. It definitely has a digital look. Yeah, and we're not going to talk about the camera and all that shit. But there's tons of information on it, and I know some of you probably care, but that's not this show. (laughs) All right, anyway, let's get into Zodiac, a movie that I'm sure some of you really are desperate to hear us talk about. It seemed like I got multiple comments about this movie over the years. It's a weird movie, not the actual movie, but its existence and its following. It has a very strong... Yeah. Cult following. Many Fincher heads consider it his masterpiece, his best film. And, and was, there's a lot of other Fincher people who don't feel that way. It was it's pretty a, well reviewed at the time, but it definitely kind of came and went with minimal fanfare. Right. It did not perform super well at the box office, and it came out at a weird time because things got a little delayed. They had mm-hmm. initially a- intended to get it out in 2006 for the Oscar season. It ends up coming out in March of 2007 yeah so by the time you get into that oscar season and it wasn't a hit Mm -hmm. people have kind of moved on like it it wasn't even really significantly in the conversation and it got zero oscar nominations i can remember i had one friend who wasn't really like a movie buff it wasn't like a keith you know he watched movies casually but for some (laughs) reason most people i don't know maybe he was really in on the serial killer stuff before it was really out there but he really wanted to see it and i remember he went and saw it and he told me about it and he liked it uh-huh. and that was the extent of really my connection with this movie for many years one conversation with a friend who liked it and like it kind of seemed like no one else in my peripheral life it really had any impact it wasn't even on the radar yeah well there's a lot to say about my personal relationship with the film as well which we'll get into this was not really one of my favorite fincher movies and it took me a long time yeah. to re- embrace it and However, reason, we're going to yeah. get there, and I think I've sort of fallen into this rabbit hole with the Zodiac case. <laughs> you do understand the appeal of this true crime shit. It's almost like there's just too much. We're inundated with the true crime stuff now, but you do understand the appeal and why it's fun. Yeah, and I do think that the culture shifting has changed how this movie feels to me because mm-hmm. back when I first saw it, I think I would have expected much more action and not a journalism right. movie in the same vein as Spotlight or yeah, yeah. All the President's Men, which this was modeled after in a lot of ways. And so it does come back to the old thing of audience expectation. And I think that I was not expecting this to be a talky drama. Right. With a few moments of suspense and horror, 
yeah. sprinkled in to a very Deep long in movie. Too, yeah. Well, not, the beginning is true. Scary. Okay, yeah, you get some of the kills in the beginning. The yeah. opening sequence is unbelievable. True, true. And yeah. if the whole movie felt like that, I probably would have loved it's just such it. Such a in long stretch. You're on such a long stretch without any of that. Yeah. And there's different segments of the movie too, where mm. certain people are main characters for an hour, fade out for 45 minutes, and then come back. Yeah. Things of that nature. Anyway, there's a lot to talk about. Before we jump in, let's remind everyone to follow the show on Twitter at GreatestPod. Email us, GreatestPod at gmail.com. Please do so when you get a chance. We'd love to read your email on the show. Make sure you're subscribed to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Seen a couple of new reviews coming in. Whoa. Very great to see. Please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you have not already done so. Sometimes it it fades to the background in terms of significance as far as what we're saying on the show, but in our hearts, it's always number one. It's the easiest way <laughs> to make us happy is to read a new review. Or I don't know. I like the emails now. Yeah, the emails are great, too. Yeah, yeah. Anything that praises us is good. <laughs> <laughs> in addition to that, we can send you a free sticker if you'd like one. Just let us know in any of those places and... Find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby. And finally, of course, listener requests. Mm. Well, we took a week off in July, which was sort of unexpected, and we have not really made up for it yet. So, Kevin, if you're listening, oh. your listener request might drift in the first couple days of August. If it does, and that is technically the next month, I assure you that the original plan, it would have been only a few days earlier on the calendar. Right. It just would have fallen in July. I think at the pace we're at now, it may move into August, but we can talk. Hit me up in the DMs if there's any issues. I think yeah. Kevin's cool. I'm sure that's fine. If it goes into <laughs> August a little bit. Yeah, thanks, Kev. Anyway, I don't think that there will really be any major shifts or changes to the schedule unless something else happens. But other than maybe moving one of our episodes a few days, I think that's all that's going to come out of us taking a week off. See? Hopefully. No harm. Anyway, let's get into it. Zodiac, 2007, directed by David Fincher. Screenplay by James Vanderbilt, based on two nonfiction books by Robert Graysmith. Zodiac, which was originally published in 1986, and Zodiac Unmasked, which was published in 2002. I never understand how a guy turns this material into like two books, because you would think that Everything well, is going into the that first. guy who wrote Chaos about Mason, I know he says he's got another book. There's I was just so much up. stuff. Yeah. Well, look at all the fucking boxes of files True. he had in his house, and there's I know, so much I, stuff. I'm just thinking when you're doing the first one, you're really trying to throw all of the good shit into it. Well, also 16 years had True. passed. Yeah. There probably was new information right. that he was addressing and things of that nature. And by 2002, the internet existed and internet sleuths had probably already True. started doing different things. If you have not already seen Zodiac and would like to watch it or would like to rewatch it for the purposes of listening to this podcast... You can't really stream it for free. I was going to say, don't tell me that I missed an opportunity to. Well, you should probably try to get in on Canopy, which is something I need to do too. Okay. Because all you need to do is have a library card, and then you basically can stream movies as if you're renting them from the library. Oh, okay. I'm interested. They don't have everything, and it only comes up occasionally, but it came up with Chinatown, and now it's come up again with Zodiac, otherwise streaming rental. 
There was just like this time period where it seemed like if I had three or four streaming services, they would all have Zodiac. Yeah, <laughs> more and more, and this is why we keep beating the drum on physical media. Yes. More and more stuff is just not available on streaming. I know. It's the worst time for entertainment that's ever happened right. for a variety of reasons. I don't want to get into all of it, but the writer's <laughs> strike and AI and cancel culture and people being afraid of doing anything and then the budgetary concerns and people not wanting to go to the theaters, the streaming wars, which has proved to be a complete disaster for everyone and I think is ultimately going to fuck everybody over. It sucks. In fact, Zodiac, uh-huh. which is 16 years old, I believe now, okay. would never be made today. No. If anything, you could get this greenlit if you had stars attached for yeah. HBO or Netflix as a miniseries. You're not doing a two-hour and 40-minute movie with minimal action and a lot of talking. Well, it That's definitely seemed like there was a lot of studio cold feet at the time. There was. The budget ended up being somewhere between 65 and 85 million based on some of the little anecdotes I came across I'm leaning more towards 85 it's like a, a gap of 20 million Just spare 20 no million expense yeah. on this movie some of the shit they were doing is insane it felt almost like I don't know Heaven's Gate or something Apocalypse like Michael Chimino where yeah. you're like wait a minute what are they doing now He's flying in trees to a lake because it doesn't look the same as it did in 1969? Are you serious? <laughs> I feel like they could have made this movie for half of what the budget was. Box office came in at $84.7 million. So even if it was 65, that's not a hit. But I think this probably lost money at the time. It's more than likely yeah. recouped it through TV deals and home video and all that shit, but... Yeah, this was not a not a big money maker, and I think in that sense it became a cult classic. That's why people really latched onto it. The Fincherheads, not because they don't love it, I, they do, but I think people always take a special interest in the things that they think should have it been felt treated like, better. Yeah, it was underappreciated. Definitely, as I said, Zodiac was nominated for zero Academy Awards, and we were deprived of a Best Picture category that would have included. Zodiac with No Country for Old Men and There Will Be Blood. Wow, what a year. I know. However, Zodiac did receive its fair share of praise, even at the time. In addition to strong historical accuracy, the film was also recognized for its acting direction, writing, and overall look. In a 2016 critics poll conducted by the BBC, Zodiac was voted the 12th greatest film of the 21st century. Wow. These lists are all over the place. Well, I guess if you're starting in the year 2000 yeah. and into t 2016, would I have had Zodiac 12th? No, but it doesn't shock me, though, because the people that respond to this film, who definitely fit more of that critical side of things, mm. love this movie. This movie is adored in a way that I sometimes find a little odd, although now I'm starting to probably join that club a little bit. I know that a podcast I listened to, one of the hosts said that he became obsessed with this movie one summer for a yeah. few months and watched it every day. Wow. It became one of those movies for people where they really latched onto it. Yeah. I think there's something familiar and comforting about the way that some of the characters behave in this movie. Because I know. People Just relate to that. Getting that obsession. Yeah. 
And it doesn't have you to be over it. a serial killer or yeah, yeah. a case or anything, but it, that thing in your life that... It's defining these dudes' lives. I know, and that's, that's becoming this podcast yeah. for me. <laughs> <laughs> Which is real sad. <laughs> As I texted Chasing you today... Chasing what? Like, who knows? I said to I you today know. via text, yeah. I'm obsessive about a movie about a serial killer that was never caught for a podcast that no one will ever listen to. I know, to. and we like don't want people to listen to it. That's the worst part. <laughs> well, I, I'm okay with some people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We but need to be able to approve the current, Yeah, the current listenership is okay but we need to like lock the gates <laughs> lock the gates no new friends yeah it took a little while for this film to grow on me i now like it a lot more and probably respect it even more than i like it but i'll never appreciate it the same way that some of the true obsessives do as i said it's it's really become one of those movies but no matter what it is truly baffling as to how slash why I did not see this in theaters. I don't know. I just remember there being like zero buzz. I don't remember it even being in theaters. I yeah. have no memory of this being released until it was already on DVD. Well, and I that's the, where I rented it. The story about my one friend. But it seemed like all I heard was that it was sort of boring and stuffy. Right. That was the word. Yeah. Well, I rented it and I expected to love it. Mm-hmm. And when I say it's baffling as to how or why I didn't see this, I should explain. I had already seen The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. So it wasn't as if I had never seen a Fincher film in the theater. I was already obsessed with Seven and Fight Club. And I definitely liked the game. Mm -hmm. I don't really know what I would have thought about Alien 3 at that point. I don't even know if I had seen it. I don't even know if I knew Fincher directed it. I wasn't like that in on things because obviously he had a new movie out. And I just was oblivious to had it. Had you I wasn't seen uh, as... Panic Room, though? No, I did not see Panic Room. Okay. I did not see Panic Room until a couple years ago, actually. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. Not one of the uh, yeah, Fincher-defining movies. A little bit weaker. I, don't, yeah. I wouldn't rule out us doing it on the show, but it's not one of his best. Totally. But it's still good enough that I think we could do it maybe one day. I think so. No guarantees. <laughs> There's no guarantee we'll do it, but... yeah. I don't want to trash it and then like two years from now be like, Panic Room, episode 560, <laughs> and then pretend like we're excited about well, we've it. Well, far more forgettable movies than Panic Room. <laughs> what are you talking about? You mean the listener requests, Matt? How dare you? <laughs> I was explaining the listener request to somebody recently and given the whole background on it and everything, and it's like that we've started charging for them, and I think that rose some eyebrows like, Really? And I'm like, well, yeah, but mostly because we don't want people to do them. <laughs> well, come on. I know. I'm, I'm teasing. How do you think we got these new mics? Yeah. <laughs> We're able to deliver a better quality It's not that product. we don't want to do them. Yeah. It's that we want to do the movies we want to do. Right. And which I think is a positive sign because it means we're both still fired up about the podcast. Totally. Like we want to talk about the stuff we want to talk about. Yeah. It's just so disappointing when somebody gives us a list. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, they're usually your friends. Yes. <laughs> Keith, he's kidding. <laughs> the film tells the story of the manhunt for the Zodiac Killer, a serial murderer who terrorized the San Francisco Bay Area during the late 1960s and early 1970s, taunting police with letters, blood-stained clothing, and ciphers mailed to newspapers. The case remains one of the United States' most infamous unsolved crimes. Fincher 
Vanderbilt and producer Bradley J. Fisher spent 18 months conducting their own investigation and research into the Zodiac murders. They interviewed witnesses, family members, suspects, retired and active investigators, the only two surviving victims, and the mayors of both San Francisco and Vallejo. They did their work, and this movie is stuffed to the gills with facts and details and information. We're probably only going to graze the surface of some of the specifics. It's overwhelming. But as Fincher put it, he saw the Zodiac Killer as the ultimate boogeyman, and he was perfect for this film, this project, because of a deeply personal connection with this story being from California Mm, and growing up during this era. For Fincher, the story of the Zodiac Killer was a personal one, thanks in part to him spending much of his childhood in San Anselmo, California, about 20 miles outside of San Francisco. Beautiful area, though. I will say that. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Fincher said, quote, I remember coming home and saying the highway patrol had been following our school buses for a couple weeks now, and my dad, who worked from home and who was very dry, not one to soft pedal things, turned slowly in his chair and said, oh yeah, there's a serial killer who has killed four or five people who calls himself Zodiac, who's threatened to take a high-powered rifle and shoot out the tires of a school bus and then shoot the children as they come off the bus. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He says to his child. (laughs) Robert Graysmith, who is the main character of the film and the writer of the original source material, first sold the film rights to his true crime book, Zodiac, to Shane Salerno, who he had built up a close relationship with. Salerno is still a Hollywood player, just like the writer of The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. I can't remember her name. Shane is heavily involved in all of the Avatar sequels, so... Wow. He was only 19 when Graysmith sold him the rights to Zodiac. Holy shit. Salerno managed to make a deal with Ricardo Mestres of Great Oaks Entertainment to co-produce and write the film for Touchstone Pictures. According to Stuart Hazeldean, who was pitched to rewrite, the script would have been about the Zodiac Killer resurfacing in Los Angeles. Oof. <laughs> James Vanderbilt had read Robert Graysmith's book Zodiac while in high school. Years later, after becoming a screenwriter, he got the opportunity to meet Graysmith and became fascinated by the folklore surrounding the Zodiac Killer. He decided to try to translate the story into a script. Vanderbilt had endured bad experiences in the past in which the endings of his scripts had been changed and wanted to have more control over the material this time. He pitched his adaptation of Zodiac to Mike Metavoy and Bradley J. Fisher from Phoenix Pictures, agreeing to write a spec script if he could have more creative control over it. Graysmith initially met Fisher and Vanderbilt at the premiere of Paul Schrader's film Autofocus, based on Graysmith's oh. 1991 book I didn't realize about that. the life and death of Bob Crane. Wow, I did not thought... Did not know there was a connection there. Well, some of this stuff is just left out of the movie. Okay, yeah. Graysmith eventually became a true crime guy. Because if I knew at that there was an autofocus crossover, I would have done a double feature. Five years had passed since Zodiac had been published, so mm-hmm. he wrote another book. That became his life, the true crime path, because yeah. he got fired as a cartoonist. That was over. <laughs> and this became his life, and it worked out. Yeah. Not cartoonist material. Maybe not the moral you should take from the story is that it could work out and you could become a successful (laughs) true crime writer. I think you're supposed to see that the people in this movie literally... Lose their minds over this? Sacrificed everything. Their lives, yeah. A deal was made and they optioned the rights to Zodiac and Zodiac Unmasked when they became available after languishing 
at another studio for nearly a decade. David Fincher was their first choice to direct based on his work on Seven. Originally, Fincher was going to direct an adaptation of James Elroy's novel, The Black Dahlia, hmm. which was later filmed by Brian De Palma. That's right. And frankly, is one of De Palma's worst movies, in my opinion. And envisioned a five-hour, $80 million miniseries with film stars. When that failed to materialize, Fincher left the project and moved on to Zodiac. So hmm. even back then, he was thinking of Zodiac as a miniseries. I don't think it should come as a huge surprise that he's found a home on Netflix and has done Mindhunter and, yeah, and potentially I mean, the Chinatown thing we mentioned last time. There's definitely some noticeable crossover with Mindhunters. Yeah, yeah. So you made a noise when I said Black Dahlia was one of De Palma's worst films. So I don't think it's a good movie, but I have watched some real De Palma clunkers. <laughs> okay, yeah. They're probably yeah, yeah, there probably is several that are worse. Black Dahlia, I saw it in the theater. It was disappointing. I think that's the word that yeah. is cuz I am obsessed with shit like right. that too. Yeah. Just as much as Zodiac or Manson or any of this shit. It would be really cool to have a definitive right. Black Dahlia movie. Agreed. And the movie is just kind of not great. Correct. But De Palma's lows are pretty yeah. rough. Yeah, that's true. Zodiac was a tough sell. The financing was tricky. Sony, who Fincher has often worked with, many of the other films we've covered of his on this podcast mm -hmm. he did through Sony, they didn't want to do it. Warner Brothers and Paramount end up co-financing. It's a movie with tons of dialogue, minimal action, yeah. and an inconclusive ending, which doesn't really make anyone feel great. It's that part in Inside Lewin Davis. It's just somebody being like, yeah, not seeing any money in this. Yeah, I think typically we would come on and rant and rave about the goddamn studio execs not seeing the artistic vision, but yeah. like ultimately this is somebody's money. Right. Somewhere between 65 and 85 million of it. Yeah, I want auteurs to be able to express themselves and do what they need to do, but sometimes the budget stuff is understandable. It's a mm -hmm. hard sell, and you're thankful that things like this do exist, but you do understand why... They don't as much anymore because it's basically just throwing money away right. at a certain point. I think that there was probably a lot of hope that streaming would solve these problems because the biggest issue is getting people to leave their house, drive to a movie theater, and pay for it. That's been the biggest issue since the invention of the movie theater. Totally. We have to get people interested in coming, and now in a more streaming-based world, Zodiac, I think, would thrive a little bit better if it was straight to HBO or Netflix or something. Mm -hmm. Even though that feels like a downgrade, but I think that the type of people who would be super interested in a journalism quote-unquote style movie would probably watch it on Hulu or HBO right. or whatever. That's the way I felt about the Harvey Weinstein movie that came out last year. I could not believe they were pushing that into theaters. Just release that on streaming and people will probably watch it. Totally. Because people love true crime and all that shit. People aren't really lining up for movies in general. Yeah, especially talky journalism yeah, ones. Yeah. If Spotlight came out now, I would say Spotlight would be more suited to streaming. And that one best picture. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the, the climate, yeah. Yeah, movies where people just stand in rooms and talk are probably better watched at home. Right. I'm sitting here as of fucking July 21st when we're recording this, still have not seen Indiana Jones, has not seen Mission Impossible. Mm-hmm. We are going to go see Barbie and Oppenheimer tomorrow. It's going to be a big day. We're still not sure if you're going to make it. Uh, there's a 50-50 chance yeah, that you're yeah. getting a text in the morning saying, I can't do it. Uh, yeah, I can I'll see you at Oppenheimer. Right. That's, that's what I'm expecting. 
<laughs> if it happens, it's going to be like, a, yeah, I just can't do this. Actually, that's this sounding better and better the more I'm saying it. But <laughs> this from the guy who saw a hundred movies in the theater in one year, and then oh, as recently as a couple a months ago, yourself. I was saying the only way I would go to the movies now is if I was seeing two, because that <laughs> makes it worth going. Well, Point there's something was, like if it's not your idea, you're less interested. <laughs> Don't try to claim the Barbenheimer double feature. That's been an internet thing. Well, okay. It's not like you. Made I'm it. not claiming this was all Lindsay's idea. <laughs> That she got from the internet. My point, though... You think I got an idea from the internet? Circling way back, is that if Mission Impossible and Indiana Jones can't lure me to the theater yet, and I will see both of them in yeah. the theater, probably, right. what chance does a super talky movie have to really inspire that? Because we've just become so accustomed to not having to do it, and people are already fading out by 2007, because this movie should have done better. Mm-hmm. But basically, Fincher was like, we're not doing another Dirty Harry. This isn't some exploitation version of this story. This is going to be the real nitty-gritty. Right. The day-to-day. The, I do the legwork. Uh, enjoy the Dirty Harry stuff showing up in this movie, though. Yeah. A lot of San Francisco movie references in it, really. Well, that movie is specifically based on Zodiac. Yes. Loosely. But they talk about Bullet at one point. Well, that's true. What, what he says. says. Yeah. Is it? Okay. McQueen, I think, shadowed some people in that department and that's where he got the gun thing was cool. from Toski. yeah i was wondering if that was actually true though having an unresolved ending may not necessarily be appetizing to hollywood execs it's part of what appealed to fincher the most he was drawn to it because it felt true to life as cases are not always solved fincher felt his job was to dispel the enduring mythic stature of the case by clearly defining what was fact and what was fiction he told vanderbilt that he wanted the screenplay rewritten with research done from the original police reports fincher found out that there was much speculation and hearsay and therefore wanted to interview people who were directly involved in the case in person to see if their stories were believable he did this because he felt a burden of responsibility in making a film that convicted someone posthumously. Hmm. So there you have it. That's what this movie does. Yeah. It is a thesis, essentially laying out a case against a very specific person. For the most part, except for a brief interlude towards the very end, it basically dismisses every other suspect yeah. and is laser-focused on Arthur Lee Allen, there is something that was really weighing on me on this screening, the diminishing returns of the years that go by as this stuff is unsolved and it just sort of fades from people's minds. It's almost like people just want it to go away. Yeah. At a certain point. Well, it becomes this albatross. Yeah. You're stuck and there's literally no way to make it move forward anymore because as Toski points out several times, there's a lot of other murders. Like, right. We can't just sit around and jack off about this for <laughs> 10 years. You have to eventually move on right. because, yeah, the Zodiac made a lot of big claims and he got a lot of big press, but he killed four or five people. And there's a lot of other murders, too, that need solved. And yeah. at some point he stopped writing letters and it became obvious that whatever he had in him probably was over because, yeah, there have been killers like BTK who take like these long yeah. breaks. And maybe that would have happened at some point with Zodiac, but it seemed like he just was done because he became more obsessed with the attention than whatever he was getting out of the actual murders. Right. Or else he would have kept doing it. 
Because his murders were so random seeming. Yeah. That and that's normally these guys get caught because they can't stop. Right. The movie does a pretty good job of explaining towards the end, but mm-hmm. as you're watching it, you're starting to think, okay, well, clearly Arthur Lee Allen decided to back off Yeah. once they, he realized he was a suspect, and that's kind of what Graysmith says at the end of the movie when he's laying out the big, big case in mm-hmm. the diner at the end of the film. Everything that he says in that moment, you're like, this all makes sense. The circumstantial case feels super strong. Maybe you couldn't actually convict someone with a super circumstantial case like that, but you never know. I think people have been convicted with less, probably. Yeah, I think we could take this all the way to trial. <laughs> well, he's been dead for 30 years, so yep. it's fine. All right, Zodiac Killer. Let's get into it. It's a pseudonym of an unidentified serial killer who operated in Northern California in the late 60s. The case has been described as the most famous unsolved murder case in American history. It became a fixture of popular culture and inspired numerous amateur detectives to attempt to solve it. The Zodiac murdered five known victims in the San Francisco Bay Area between 1968 and October 1969, operating in rural, urban, and suburban settings. He targeted young couples and a lone male cab driver. His known attacks took place in Benicia... Vallejo, unincorporated Napa County, and the city of San Francisco proper. Two of his wounded victims survived. The Zodiac, in one of his letters, claimed to have murdered 37 victims. He has been linked to several other cold cases, some in Southern California or even outside of the state. I'll stop this right here and say, unlikely, because he seemed to fucking brag about everything, including things he didn't do. The projected body count ranges all over the place. Well, he specifically wrote in a letter yeah. where he had previously written blank equals four, SFPD equals zero, then it was 10, yeah. then it was zero, 10 to zero. Then his last letter, he did write 37 to zero at one point. 37? <laughs> in a row. Yeah. The Zodiac coined this name in a series of taunting letters and cards that he mailed to regional newspapers in which he threatened killing sprees and bombings if they were not printed. Some of the letters included cryptograms or ciphers in which the killer claimed that he was collecting his victims as slaves for the afterlife. Hmm. What is this, phantasm? Yeah, really. He shrinks them down. (laughs) Of the four ciphers he produced, two remain unsolved. And one was cracked as recently as 2020, which we'll get more into that later. While many theories regarding the identity of the killer have been suggested, the only suspect authorities ever publicly named was Matt's dad. Actually, no, sorry, Arthur Lee Allen, a former elementary school teacher and convicted sex offender who died in 1992. Is that not my dad? <laughs> Although the Zodiac ceased written communications around 1974, the unusual nature of the case led to international interest that has been sustained throughout the years the sfpd marked the case inactive in april 2004 but reopened it at some point prior to march 2007 though some people do credit this film for getting the case reopened it seemed almost preventative or like preemptive they're like oh shit this movie's gonna get everyone talk let's just mark it as active again because they're gonna come in here and make a scene that's true yeah because no one knows exactly when it was marked back to active, but it was sometime before this movie came you out. You love these things that can just galvanize people and cause people to mobilize and well, demand that, something. That wouldn't have been that bad yeah. if they if people had legitimate leads. Sure. If there was renewed interest that 
cause somebody to come forward or whatever. You never know what's going to shake something out. You never oh, know yeah. why or when or how or whatever. The case also remains open in the city of Vallejo as well as in Napa and Solano counties. The California Department of Justice has maintained an open case file on the Zodiac murder since 1969. I think in what I just explained and summarized about the Zodiac killer serves as an explanation as to why people are so obsessed with it, but it it really just combines all of the best and most fun stuff about amateur detectives, true crime, true crime obsessives, and takes it to a level that you could never imagine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because there's puzzles, there's letters, there's changing the MO, there's a huge area that he's covering, there's time gaps. It's so weird and different. He seems to be outsmarting the police in ways that no other serial killer ever did. If everything that is thought to be him was him, meaning he changes up his MO that much, different murder weapons, completely different styles the costume that he's wearing, which seems like it's out of some ridiculous movie. Yeah, like wannabe superheroes. Yeah. It looks so absurd yeah. and in in a weird way. That's what, what makes it scarier, that someone's just so bold. Right. Middle of the day, wearing this executioner's hood in a black outfit with a weird symbol on it. Yeah, I know. People would be laughing at him. <laughs> what is this, dude? <laughs> Summing it up. (laughs) What is this, dude? Come Come on. on. (laughs) Get real. (laughs) That's what you say as you're getting in your car, laughing. (laughs) Get real. As far as things stand, do you think Zodiac is the best possible unresolved serial killer movie? Is this the best it could possibly be when you're not going to have that definitive answer? I like Memories of Murder, too. Oh, that's true, but they did solve that eventually. True, true. Yeah. Yeah. So then, yes. (laughs) To your original question, yeah, I don't yes. really ever think there's been like a Jack the Ripper movie that's really been great. No, I've only seen the one, which is which one from Hell, yeah, with JD. Uh huh. Yeah, I saw that in the theater. I don't really remember. Not it. big I don't on think it. it. Was great. No, a lot I, d- of I didn't like it. That I yeah, didn't really understand. Yeah, too much time in opium. Think, isn't dance. that based off of like an Alan Moore thing too? I think so. Yes. There was that one called Jack's Back. <laughs> I haven't seen. <laughs> Where it's I have not James seen. Spader in like present day or something where he somehow is in a present day world or something. Okay. It's digital, it's clean, it's cold, it's visually perfect and I think that it serves as the transition to what we now recognize as the modern Fincher style and aesthetic. But at the same time, I think that's that digital, artificial, yeah. cold feeling that has kept me at a distance, especially in the past. Mm-hmm. But it's weird because the term I would use to explain the way I feel about it is generally what you would apply to people right. when they don't look right, which is Uncanny Valley. Yeah, I feel that way about exterior shots in this movie where it looks real but not real at the right. same time, and it kind of gives you that weird feeling of like, what am I looking at? But it's yeah. buildings and skies and digital things here and there where you're kind of like, that looks weird and not right to me. Yeah, but I would say after this less digital looking. Well, I think the technology improved. Yeah, yeah. When you go back and you watch Panic Room, the CGI and some of the weird shit in that looks really dated. Mm. So he's always been one of those guys at the forefront of technology. Right. Sometimes when you're using something that's brand new, it ends up not being a thing that sticks around very long Uh and gets replaced with something better pretty quickly. And then you have these 
movies throughout time that kind of have these weird technologies. Sometimes yeah. they look cool, and you're like, well, why didn't we keep this? I know there's some movies right. in the 80s that use different stuff that wasn't used a lot. Yeah, I really like the look of Social Network and Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Right, but he also probably had to do less computer stuff. True. Because Cause the big thing for they're this set is like in the, the period present. piece look. Well, yeah. yeah, in order to save money and time, they weren't going to like physically remove satellite dishes and signage and different things on buildings and stuff. Mm-hmm. They had to just digitally do that to make it look like it was 1969. Right. So, yeah, they're taking like a bigger brush to paint the whole world, which was not the case in some yeah. of those later films. What you're left with at the end of all of that work to come up with this movie is a truly exhaustive process to give us the definitive version of what we knew in 2007 about the Zodiac case. Fincher said, even when we did our own interviews, we would talk to two people. One would confirm some aspects of it, and another would deny it. Plus, so much time had passed, memories are affected. Yeah, that part of it sort of is a, a brain teaser. And the different telling of the stories would change perception, so when there was any doubt, we always went with the police reports. During the course of their research, Fincher and Fisher hired Gerald McAmenon a forensic linguistics expert and professor of linguistics at California State University Fresno to analyze the Zodiac's letters. Unlike document examiners in the 1970s, he focused on the language of the Zodiac and how he formed his sentences in terms of structure and spelling. Alan J. Pakula's film All the President's Men was the template for Zodiac as Fincher felt that it was also the story of a reporter determined to get to the story at any cost and one who was new to being an investigative reporter. It was all about his obsession to know the truth. Like in that film, he did not want to spend time telling the backstory of any of the characters, focusing instead on what they did in regards to the case. Vanderbilt was drawn to the notion that Graysmith went from a cartoonist to one of the most significant investigators of the case. He pitched the story as, what if Gary Trudeau woke up one morning and tried to solve the son of Sam? I don't know who Gary Trudeau is. As he worked on the script, he became friends with Graysmith. The filmmakers secured the cooperation of the Vallejo Police Department, one of the key investigators at the time, because they hoped the film would inspire someone to come forward with information that might help solve the cold case. So this definitely confirms that anyone can become like a private investigator. Well, you need a license, but there's really no, nothing stopping you. Right. You can so, do it yeah. if you want. <laughs> so it's on the table is what I'm saying. Well, Anyone can be a landscaper, too. Anyone can be a doctor if you graduate. <laughs> what did you think was stopping you? I just think that that's what we need to do. <laughs> okay, we'll do it. Okay, thanks. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready to start I know right you now. are now with your sticky notes all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> Zodiac is less a movie about a serial killer or murders than it is about obsession. The only real comment that Robert Graysmith said mm -hmm. about the finished screenplay was, God, now I see why my wife divorced me. <laughs> I know. And that's one of the frustrating parts about the movie, too, is all these dudes, the beatdown, the alcoholism, the crazed obsession, none of their perspectives seem reliable by the end of the movie. And they put that in your head, too, that these guys just want to, they want it to be this dude. Yeah. 
The film opens with the vintage Paramount and Warner Brothers logos. This was a joint production. As I said, Sony got cold feet over the potential runtime. They really wanted to lock Fincher into two hours and 15 minutes or something like that, and he could not do that. This is blasphemous. He wanted to do like a multi-hour I love these guys. I, I love when they yeah, yeah, Okay, well, the miniseries part is. But you, when you hear well, directors, that's, that's yeah. their job. They right. look at the script, and they look at the information, and they, can, they know how long this needs to right. be. That's part of what it is like they are like this much material everything that's crucial obviously in his opinion everything that's crucial this is what it would at least need to be this long and sony's pushing back wanting it to be shorter speaking of which let's get into the runtime a little bit an early version of zodiac ran three hours and eight minutes it was supposed to be released in time for academy award consideration but paramount felt the film ran too long and they asked fincher to make changes contractually he had final cut and once he reached a length he felt was right the director refused to make any further cuts to trim down the film to its official runtime he had to cut a two-minute blackout montage of hit songs signaling the passage of time from Joni Mitchell to Donna Summer I would also like to add that that scene has news reports as well Mm -hmm. it was replaced with a title card that reads four years later another cut scene that test screening audiences did not like involved three guys talking into a speakerphone to get a search warrant as Tosky and Armstrong, played by Ruffalo and Anthony Edwards, talked to SFPD Captain Marty Lee, played by Dermot Moroney, about their case against suspect Arthur Lee Allen. Fincher said that this scene would probably be put back on the DVD, and it is. I don't know why test audiences didn't like it. I, I actually thought it was a pretty decent scene. Same. It actually lays out how strong their case seems right. from a circumstantial and I feel perspective. Like, it's so, like there's an excitement to it because they think yeah. they're going to get this guy. Well, at that point, Armstrong and Toski already believe it's Alan, and the excitement sort of spreading to their captain, who now also believes it's Alan. And then as they're talking to the DA on the phone, the DA starts to be like, wow, mm-hmm. that's actually really strong. So, yeah, it does seem like they have it in that moment, and then they don't find anything, and they can't get it over the hump. Mm -hmm. They always get to that same spot with Alan. Like, we have so many things that seem like it's him. The boots and the gloves. Everything. I know. That's the thing that I don't even know if you haven't seen this movie or if you haven't seen it in a while, you may not realize or remember or understand. There's a lot of damning evidence. There's so much circumstantial evidence that you're screaming. You're thinking, this has to be the guy. There's just no way. The birthday thing. I know, it's crazy. He lived 50 feet away from where Darlene, the one victim, lived or mm-hmm. worked. Yeah. Because they wanted to connect him, and they do, essentially. They're like, he had to have known her. There's just no way. <laughs> I'm getting lost in the weeds now. <laughs> this might be like a very all-over-the-place episode because you do sort of fall down these little tangents. You go down this road for a while, and you're like, wait a minute, what about this and this? I know. It was a 200-page script, so like The Social Network, he did instruct everyone to speak fast <laughs> come on guys Pick he knew the that pace. he couldn't let it be 300 minutes or something crazy he had to somehow reel it in a little bit the director's cut which is available on blu-ray is 162 minutes this one feels like the definitive version although if you rent it you may see the theatrical i don't think it was a huge difference it was actually the director's cut that they used for the academy 
screeners, mm. which resulted in no nominations. <laughs> but I thought that was a that's weird a little factoid because yeah. I don't know that that's really happened many other times. That that's doesn't true. seem like something that would happen. The first words on the screen are what follows is based on actual case files. And I do want to point out once again, as far as the historical movies we've done over the last couple of years, this one gets a ton of praise mm. for how accurate it is. Which is cool. There are things in it that are inaccurate, but those are things that don't matter. Right. In other words, Grace Smith and Avery weren't really friends. They didn't really ever develop any kind of a relationship. But it makes well, more sense for a movie to totally. do that. Right. Because then it's guys just ships in the night. There's yeah, like no, no conversations right. going on. They need a connection there. I think they knew each other from working at the paper, but I don't know that they really had any. They weren't like partners on this case. No, I think a lot of the scenes that involve them talking to each other probably weren't mm-hmm. real or accurate. July 4th, 1969, Vallejo, California. So right away, for me, I was thinking overlap with Manson. Uh, yeah. We're like a month away from the Manson well, murders. Well, dude, I mean, even watching this, I was getting like glimpses of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the way it starts off with the music playing on the radio. They're playing some similar type yeah. radio DJ talk. Right, yeah. This opening... Going through this peaceful, 60s, suburban, idyllic, tranquil place is very deliberate, very intentional. It's a Norman Rockwell painting Yeah, that's going to be lit on fire and torn up in about five minutes. And it's such a brutal, crazy way to start a movie, and it really hooks you in. And it really makes you think this is going to be a suspense, horror, thriller, yeah. nonstop kind of a thing. And I think getting over that initial right. thing was part of what took me a while to really embrace the movie. But I'm there now. I should uh, obviously, say. there's a lot more like investigative journalism going on in this, but there definitely is some Summer of Sam type crossover. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to do one famous murderer a year now. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Last year was David Berkowitz, Son of Sam. Yep. Now, the Zodiac. That's right. <laughs> We've already done Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, although I wouldn't really say that's about Manson no. in any way. And it doesn't end up really happening in that one. Lee Norris, who you may remember from Boy Meets World, plays a young Mike Majot. You may also know him from another Fincher film. He was a cop in Gone Girl. Oh, yeah. He is a survivor of this first opening Zodiac attack and will kind of serve as the exclamation point at the end of the movie. We're going to circle back to Mike. That's right. To kind of be the definitive version that we can uh, have here. In a way, he's the one that deals the final blow. Right. As if, yes, it's Arthur Lee Allen, Mm -hmm. you know. He's at least an eight on it. Eight out of ten. Well, that's fair. That's pretty damning, It was a long time. At that point, it had been over 20 years. One night in the dark. No, I know. On July 4th, 1969, an unknown man attacks Darlene Farron and Mike Majot with a handgun at a lover's lane in Vallejo, California. Only Mike survives. First of all, they drive through a drive-in fast food place called Mr. Ed's Burgers and Fries. Looks like my type of joint. Do you want your clientele to think that you're serving horse meat? (laughs) Mr. Ed for a burger place? I don't know. Come on. I don't think people are getting caught up in it. By the end of the movie, we learn a lot about... What a good time girl Darlene Farron may have been. She seems like a party. <laughs> never ends. It's her idea to go someplace quiet. Sure. And she's driving. So she wants to go have some fun. This Zodiac killer, though, he does struggle to finish the job several times. Yeah, they do throw out a theory in the movie that he gets fixated on the women mm-hmm. and 
kind of moves away from the men because there was two male survivors, but that's probably just a guess. I don't right. think anyone really knows what the fuck totally. is going on. It could have just been a coincidence. Yeah. Because he does shoot both of them plenty of times. Right. <laughs> Hurdy Gurdy Man is playing. I love that. Very I, scary and effective. Added to my Apple Music immediately. It feels like a horror movie, and it's sort of shot like a horror movie and very reminiscent of Friday the 13th, except they don't fall into that trap of yeah. playing the music. It's all generally silent except for the car radio well, playing Hurdy Gurdy, man. The way they do this, and then the couple by the lake, you're like, this is what I think this movie's going to be like. Yeah. And then it turns out to not be that for the next two hours. <laughs> There's like four minutes of it yeah, yeah. in the entire movie. <laughs> Mike says he recognizes this car that comes down. So when they first drive down to this little area where I guess people make out or have sex or whatever, mm-hmm. there's two other vehicles filled with rowdy kids. <laughs> Very romantic. They both leave. Mm-hmm. They throw a can or something at Mike Ugh. and Darlene's car. and Degenerates. Mike's like, fuck off and die. <laughs> and Darlene makes fun of him. <laughs> and then this other car shows up. And headlights blaring so he can't see in it. it. I know. It's a loud car, like a Mustang or something. It drives up right behind them. And it's that thing, you know something's wrong right away. Yeah. It does feel like, and this kind of happens with the couple by the lake, although they kind of run out of time quickly. But with the car... Well, yeah, they do have an opening. Yeah. They have a big, but, like, why would you think... I know. Once he drives away that... You would never think that. Right. You're only thinking because you're watching this movie. <laughs> you would never actually be like, oh, that guy's going to come back. I don't now. know, though. I'm pretty paranoid. And I always think something bad is going to happen. Well, when you figure out the rest of the details, yeah, yeah I, there's reason to be paranoid. Because, obviously, Mike and... Darlene are not married because right. he says, was that your husband when the guy drives away? And I was thinking, I thought they were teenagers. Yeah. What? It does seem that way. It does have a very like teenagers after prom type feel, this hang. I do think they're supposed to be young. Yeah. Probably very early 20s when people got married younger in mm-hmm. the 60s. And we know that Darlene hung out with a lot of men even though she was married. We don't know anything about her husband. Her husband is never mentioned. He's not a character. Who knows what was going on? But anyway, in this moment, the car parks behind them, then speeds off. Mike says he recognizes the car from back at Mr. Ed's. I went back and looked. I thought there may be a car that might be this one. I couldn't really tell. All the cars kind of look the same. Yeah, hard to say that. That was creepy, though. That made it Mm -hmm. feel creepy. True. They have the chance to leave, but don't take it. And then the car all of a sudden starts speeding back. And as soon as they saw the car speeding back, then you should have turned the car on. And he even says that to her. I know. He says, Darlene, let's go, but she doesn't do anything. And then all of a sudden, the car is blocking them in. They can't yep. really go anywhere. What do we get? Sitting, listening to music, talking. You seem weird. Is everything okay? Yeah, everything's fine. July, how many shirts are you wearing? I'm cold. You're cold on the 4th of July. Fuck up and die! What? Fuck off and die? (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) 
to worry who was it? it's nothing Man, you really creeped us out. attack itself is thoughtless jarring it's so abrupt gone out immediately it's not drawn out right. as if it's a slasher movie or anything yeah he just walks right up doesn't say anything and just starts shooting i know it seems like and based on what they say later that he probably had a flashlight attached to a gun so that as he's pointing the gun at you you can't see because right. you're blinded by the flashlight and we're plunged right into it i, I think it's the ultimate cold open maybe a little misleading as we said but it is awesome totally 
Because he wanted the film to be as accurate as possible, Fincher decided not to depict any of the alleged Zodiac murders for which there were no surviving victims or witnesses. For this reason, the Zodiac killer's first confirmed attack, the murders on Lake Herman Road, were completely excluded from the film. It was decided then to open the film with the 4th of July murders considered to be the Zodiac's second attack because Mike survives. So yeah. there's someone who explained exactly what happened to the police. Besides, I'll add parenthetically, it's very cinematic to open your film yeah. on the 4th of July with totally. a murder. Uh-huh. You're going to remember that. That's way more cinematic. Yes, this was a good choice. And like I said, I think juxtaposing the perfect Norman Rockwellian neighborhood to the horror that's about to happen, it's almost Lynchian. Yeah. It's like underneath the surface, there's that's this right. guy. The dark underbelly. The murder victim's costumes were all meticulously recreated from forensic evidence that was lent to the production. I mean all of the victims. Wow, that's not very just detailed. This Holy scene. shit. The producers hired a private investigator to track down the real-life Zodiac survivor, Mike Majot. Wow. Both he and fellow survivor Brian Hartnell served as consultants on the film. I'm not sure about Hartnell. I think Majot might still be alive, and I don't think he is a public person at all. I think he's been trying to hide for 30 years uh, at least. Sure. Well, I appreciate the dedication to the craft. Do you really need that level of accuracy, getting the outfits, like the materials for the outfits? I think part of it was just the mentality of, if we're going to make this movie and say this is how it happened, and we're basically going to insinuate this guy did it, even though... I don't know whatever happened to his brother and his brother's wife. It seemed like his own family was kind of like, yeah, they, was we're, a... we're fine with him being yeah. the Zodiac. They, <laughs> they kind of accepted we're it. We're really trying to incriminate him, really. Yeah, they're like, it was him, though, right? Uh-huh. But anyway, by the time this movie came out, I don't know who was surviving that would have claimed him. So right. I don't know that there would have been like a lawsuit or anything. But yeah, if they would have gotten a sweater wrong, I don't think that would have mattered. But it's that mentality <laughs> I of... Know. The facts. Let's just have yep. all the facts and let the audience decide, even though we're going to kind of eliminate yeah. stuff to make sure that they only focus on the it's guy like, we want uh, to do. Kevin Costner and JFK. <laughs> In one of the Zodiac's letters, he muses on who would portray him in a film about him. In this film, he is portrayed by three separate actors, and in any shot featuring the Zodiac, the actors' faces are always out of focus or obscured. This served to keep the audience guessing and perhaps as a bulk to the actual Zodiac killer so he wouldn't be portrayed by a visible or famous actor. It also would have been ridiculous, though, to either make it not John Carroll Lynch or to make it John Carroll Lynch. Yeah. If you make a decision, then the movie is fucked at that point. Oh, yeah. Unless you figure out a way to, I don't know, I I guess you really can't. Unless you have it be John Carroll Lynch, but you don't show his face, but how's that any different from what they did anyway? True. He's not one of the three people who actually portrays him in the killing scene. He's not. No, it's... I, was, I didn't think so, but I was curious about it's that. It's just other guys. Nancy Slover, the Vallejo operator who took the first Zodiac call, was asked to help provide voice direction by selecting an audio recording of readings by various unidentified actors. After selecting the recording that sounded closest to Zodiac, it was revealed that she'd selected a reading by... John Carroll Lynch, okay, who plays prime suspect Arthur Lee Allen. Gotcha. I know that that doesn't even count as circumstantial, but it just feels like everything is always pushing it <laughs> towards this one thing, which will make it be in five years when they figure out who the Zodiac Killer is. It's someone that's never been mentioned ever anywhere. <laughs> oh, it was actually this guy the whole time. 
It was Tosky. It was Avery. You would buy Avery. Well, there were points in this movie where I thought the natural reaction of the people that Graysmith talks to would be, you are the Zodiac. Right. Because why are you so obsessed You're with You're so this? crazed, just feverishly working on this 24-7. Four weeks later in San Francisco, California. So at this point, we're... I hate to keep doing this, but a week, week and a half away from the Manson murders? It's mm. just weird to me. This was all happening in the same no, state at the same time. Heading into the 70s, there was like a, another serial killer in Southern California. There was the yeah. Night Stalker. Right. And there was that guy that they just caught who was mm-hmm. one of them. and I don't, The Night, the di- whatever. Yeah. They right. have all those weird names. Patton Oswalt's yeah. wife. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. The San Francisco Chronicle receives... The first encrypted letter written by the killer calling himself Zodiac, who threatens to kill a dozen people unless his coded message containing his identity is published. Political cartoonist Robert Graysmith, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, is present in the room when the first letter is read, and he correctly guesses that the killer's identity is not actually in the letter, and this gives him his first taste of his obsession. It's just a little taste, and he's hooked. (laughs) Paul, what's on the crime beat? Janice, in date book, left the fondue party before everyone got naked. That's a crime. <laughs> Just seen her. Wouldn't kid you. Maybe we're beginning of a crime wave. You need to see this. Go get the publisher. Dear editor, this is the murderer of the two teenagers last Christmas at Lake Herman and the girl on the 4th of July near the golf course in Vallejo. Prove I killed them, I shall state some facts which only <clears throat> I and the police know. Christmas, brand name of ammo, Super X. Ten shots were fired. The boy was on his back with his feet to the car. The girl. Jeeva. Read that, please. The girl was on her right side, feet to the west. Fourth of July. One, girl was wearing patterned slacks. The boy was also shot in the knee. Brand name of ammo was Western. Here is part of a cipher. The other two parts of this cipher are being mailed to the editors of the Vallejo Times and SF Examiner. I want you to print this cipher on the front page of your paper. In this cipher is my identity. If you do not print this cipher by the afternoon of FRY, first of Aug 69, I will go on a kill rampage Fry night. I will cruise around all weekend killing lone people in the night then move on to kill again until i end up with a dozen people over the weekend it's unsigned except for a symbol is it me does that look like a gun sign today's august 1st he wants his code in the afternoon edition if the examiner doesn't have the balls to run it we scoop the bay now this man is talking about shooting 12 people and not running this might make him do that if we run it we might be setting a very dangerous precedent oh come on now it's newsworthy we're giving some sick bastard a soapbox what does that say to people back up is this vallejo story true do we know that paul what i cover crime in vallejo yeah i cover crime in vallejo Let's shoot the code and call SFPD. If it turns out to be real, at least we'll have the material. All right. Ray Smith, don't you have a cartoon to finish? Oh, yeah. Hi, this is Paul Avery from the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm looking for someone to shed some light on a letter we received. Thank you. 
Sergeant Mullenix. Sergeant Paul Avery from the San Francisco Chronicle. I just want to check if you had an unsolved firearm-related homicide on Christmas and maybe one on July 4th. Shit. You guys got one, too. Confirmed. VPD, they confirmed the shootings. Al's on the phone of the examiner. They got the same letter with a different code. Well, so the Times Herald. Christmas, two teenagers on Lover's Lane, both the OA, David Faraday and Betty Jensen. July 4th, Darlene Farron and Michael Mc... I think it's Mayhew. Anyway, he lived. She didn't. The murder weapon? Ballistics. Everything he said in the letters matched. I mean, I think the Times Herald's going to go with it. The examiner's going, but won't go front page. I say, let's go front page. If he kills 12 people, it's not our fault. Robert, we need the car, too. Oh. Oh. You're not finished? No, I'm finished, Carol. I'm finished. Terrio's still here. Really? The first edition is off the floor in 10, Charles. Uh, give us a sec. Okay, replay. We'll go on page, page four. What do you say, 20 bucks, whoever cracks the psycho's name? He won't give his name. Morty's, anyone? Where I'm heading. Gyllenhaal was Fincher's first choice for Graysmith. He was an admirer of Gyllenhaal's work in Donnie Darko. Orlando Bloom was evidently his second choice. Whatever happened to that dude? Hmm. <laughs> oh, boo-hoo, he used to be married to Miranda Kerr, and now he's with Katy Perry. What a life. Jennifer Aniston also factors heavily into the casting of this film, which we'll get to later when we huh. introduce Ruffalo. The other person of interest at the Chronicle is Paul Avery, played by Robert Downey Jr. What a time to yeah. snag Downey Jr. I know to be this is this. like right before Iron Man, right? Right before he's about to become a huge star again. He's got all of this energy. Yeah, charisma, charm. And he's clearly bringing so much to the part yeah. that's not written there. I don't even know if this character is funny if a different actor plays him. Yeah, right. Brad Pitt was someone Fincher was interested in for Avery because obviously they've worked together a million times. They're good friends. I don't know what the story was if Pitt turned it down or wasn't available. Daniel Craig was also in the mix. They would hmm. work together pretty soon after this for Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I guess we'll just point it out now. We mentioned it when we did The Social Network. We mentioned it in A Clockwork Orange. Similar vibe. Fincher's demanding and exacting style of working. This was not going over well with Downey Jr. and Gyllenhaal and all these people. I think they mostly adapted over time, but I think at first they were like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> and then Fincher would defend it by giving an example of a scene and said, okay, this scene we did 56 takes, and the 56th take is the one in the movie, meaning he thought that was the best one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think that makes anybody happy, though. Well, at least he's doing it on digital now right. and not wasting that yeah. much film because that probably would have made this budget $100 million. Yeah. So there's three letters, three codes sent to three newspapers, one in Vallejo, two in San Francisco. The movie never really gets into the other newspapers or anything like that. I don't think yeah. it's super important. They did not crack all the ciphers. This I think they all, cracked uh, one of them. San Francisco Chronicle. Graysmith is immediately hooked, but he's not taken seriously by Avery or his other coworkers. It feels like high school in a way. Which somehow Jake Gyllenhaal's not popular at the high school of yeah. this newspaper, but okay. He's made fun of even by the guy that sells coffee. <laughs> I think being the cartoonist is a tough gig. Tough to get respect as the cartoonist. It's tough to get respect. I don't know if it's a tough gig. Yeah. It seems like it'd be pretty okay, fun. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> 
You just get to draw donkeys and elephants fighting or whatever political cartoonists do. <laughs> you draw like a weird sketch of Putin yeah. and Trump having sex or something. Right. And then you're like, yeah, Print that's it, moving art. on. Yeah. <laughs> on the other hand, Avery is very much the life of the party at this point. His life hasn't gone off the rails. So he's like the big man. Oh, on yeah. He's at the living day, it right? up. He is a crime writer. So he, of course, is right on this beat. Whereas Graysmith never has any direct connection to it. He just sort of makes it his hobby, and then slowly that hobby grows into his entire life. Yeah. Going through people's trash cans in the office. That's the only way that anyone will tell him anything. (laughs) He had to find the information himself. Graysmith is already divorced with a young son. Evidently another kid, too, but I don't don't think they ever show that other kid. Mm -hmm. Because then the kids later, well, maybe one of the, I don't know. It seems like he had two kids with his first wife. But it's unclear if we ever see the other one. And then he has more kids with right. the second wife who comes along later. But he's sharing custody, so he's with the kids sometimes. He's a single father. He seems pretty normal. And then things take a turn. Though Graysmith is clearly interested, he is excluded from the initial details about the case. He is just a cartoonist after all. The newspapers publish the letters, though not on the front page, and a married couple is able to decipher one of them. It's a block of symbols. I don't know how many symbols or lines. I didn't write any of that down, but it's a bunch of lines with symbols. You can't really tell where word breaks are or anything like that. Mm-hmm. These initial ciphers, I think, were pretty solvable, at least some of them, because it doesn't take you got to take the bait. Right. <laughs> he didn't want to start out with the hardest one, nothing, because if yeah. no one solves it, then the story so, might like, be over. Straight to the shredding bin. Jackass. Yeah. <laughs> Local ass clown tries to impress us. <laughs> Fuck him. That's the whole headline. <laughs> That'd be the headline if I was working at the newspaper. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck off, nerd. This sucks. <laughs> but cracking the thing is so fucking crazy on its own because, like I said, there's no breaks and all that shit. And then when you're making a code and the code takes 50 years to crack like one of his did, it's because... You're not just substituting letters for symbols. It's this whole revolving thing. It's like Uh a key that changes and moves, and only you know the rules. So, of course, it might take someone forever to figure out what your stupid rules were. Because how would they? Is the juice worth the squeeze? Well. For this guy, For the five people he killed, I guess it would be to try to. True. But for all of the press that the ciphers get, and that is one of the defining things about the Zodiac. Nothing he put in code really helped anything. It's mm-hmm. just random shit. I know. It's not like he actually said who he was in the... Maybe well, he did in well, one of the ones I he know. never cracked. I think but. one of the big tricks of the movie is you think that there's a pattern. Like, you think there's going to be a pattern. Right, and just like the ciphers he makes, the yeah. pattern is not consistent and it's right. insane. He might be a genius, but he's clearly an evil genius. Yeah. And you can't figure out... What he's doing because he's also a psychopath. (laughs) (laughs) Right. The first cipher says, I like killing people because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest with two R's because man is the most dangerous animal of all to kill something gives me the most thrilling experience. It is even better than getting your rocks off with a girl. The best Mm. part of it is that when I die, I will be reborn in paradise spelled with a C instead of an S. Yeah. And all the I have killed will become my slaves. I will not give you my name because you will try to slow down or stop my collecting of slaves. 
for my afterlife, E-B-E-O-R-I-E-T-E-M-E-T-H-H-P-I-T-I. Okay. No one really knows for sure what that means. That could just be runoff to confuse you. Yeah. Intentional um, misspellings, I'm going to say probably. Not a particularly... Because that throws you off. Right. Not a particularly eloquent... No man. punctuation, yeah. obviously. So it's just a paragraph of words... I think it's weird that in the movie, some of the characters seem to think that he is stupid for misspelling things. Right. But then later, when they latch onto Arthur Lee Allen, it seems like his sister-in-law confirms that he does that intentionally because he thinks it's funny. Mm-hmm. Because he spells Christmas with two S's at the end. Yeah. There's always two S's in Christmas. There's but... always that one guy in the family that thinks he's funny. <laughs> he's also the Zodiac. Yeah. <laughs> I think the, the misspellings aren't intentional to make it even harder. Yeah. I think that's part of his ciphering is to try to throw you off. I think that's fair. Another letter arrives. Clearly, our boy likes all the attention. One and a half months later, that puts us deep into September of 69. We're up in Napa, California. The killer stabs Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard at Lake Berryessa. Cecilia dies from her wounds two days later, and Brian survives. This is a scene that is often referenced, and I think the reason is it's just so unlike most scenes in movies that it sticks out in this weird way. And for some people, it's horrifying and terrifying. For some people, it might be funny because it's so weird that he's wearing this outfit in the middle of the day, just out there. He doesn't seem intimidating other than the fact that he has a gun. He seems like a dork in a costume with a gun. It feels like he's coming out of the middle of nowhere. Yeah, because we don't see him approach until he's already pretty close. So right. it's like, where is his car? I don't know. How did he get there? Why aren't there any other people at this lake? I know. It seems like there would be other people. He's all in black. His face is concealed. He's got that symbol in white on his clothing. It looks like a gun scope, although it may have something to do with film, we find out later. We don't know what it is. It's a circle with a cross through it. Yeah, fairly basic symbol. He's wearing an executioner-style hood. It's all very random feeling. Is it? That look reminds me of the town that dreaded sundown. A little bit, yeah. yeah. Might have been inspired. Could I'm be. I'm sure the Zodiac killings inspired Several a lot movies. of horror yeah. movies. <laughs> Because him and Son of Sam were attacking couples and cars. What's a big part of every slasher movie and horror movie? These couples and cars oh, yeah. or whatever. The murder interludes are effective. Again, cold-blooded, seemingly out of nowhere, clinical, no score. I would describe them as anti-theatrical. True. There's no build-up, no suspense, right. no music, just all of a sudden. Just cold butchering. Because people. even in this yeah. moment where there's a little bit of a build-up, because he's talking to them, he's acting like it's a robbery, he's telling them to, he escaped from prison, I he's know. saying all this weird shit, and then when he actually starts killing them, you're like, what, what the fuck? It right. just comes out of nowhere. It's a lot of effort getting them tied up and everything doesn't really seem like that was necessary for him to accomplish his goal. The only thing I could speculate about that is that he was already thinking about not doing the same thing every time. Mm -hmm. He wanted it to look completely different from the July 4th murders. Yeah, yeah. So he uses a knife instead of a gun. He ties them up. He robs them. He's doing different things already. You know this used to be the town of Monticello? But at some point, the county decided that the land would work better as a lake. So they flooded it. But there's an entire... Hidden city under the water. We were here last spring, remember? Oh, yeah. 
Somebody else is here. It is a public park. I think he's watching us. Well, we're very good looking. Where'd he go? Right behind that tree. All right, so he's taking a leak. Oh my god, he has a gun. Don't move! I want your money and your car keys. Okay. We're not gonna do anything, okay? We're gonna cooperate. Just tell me what you want us to do. You're welcome to everything I have. If there's anything else I could do for you, maybe I could write you a check. Okay, I could give you my phone number. You know, I might be able to help you. Even more than you might think. He's a sociology major. Pre-law. Actually. Um, keys. You know, I'm sorry, I don't know exactly where I put my keys. They might be on the blanket. Is it okay? Here's the case. Don't get up. I want her to tie you up. Okay. Get any ideas? I'm not. I killed a guard escaping from prison in Montana. I'm not doing anything, okay? I'm not afraid to kill again. Look away. What was the name of that prison? Hey, you said it was in Montana, right? Taking your car and going to Mexico. We didn't complain when you tied our hands. Okay, you have everything that I have. We have done everything that you've asked. It's okay. She tied your loose, didn't she? Get on your stomach so I can tie your feet. Okay. It gets really cold out here at night. We could freeze. Okay, you all done? You know, just because people are going to ask, was that thing even loaded? It's okay. This is all going to be okay. Trees had to be helicoptered into the Lake Berryessa location as the area had changed substantially since 1969 and David Fincher wanted it to resemble the murder site as closely as possible. Well, I'm glad they did that. 
That and the making sure the sweaters were the right okay. colors really made it for me. I saw a real picture on Wikipedia, I believe, or wherever, of what it looked like with the symbol drawn on the car with the message. And it's creepy. Yeah, yeah. It's creepy in the movie. And then when you see a picture and you're thinking, he did this in real life. It's so bizarre. It says Vallejo, New Line, 12-20-68, New Line, 7-4-69, New Line, September 27th, 69, 6-30, as in the time, 6-30, and then on a new line, by knife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then again, just like what happened on July 4th, it's self-reporting. He makes an anonymous 911 call so that they'll find the bodies. I believe oh, was yeah, it the right. I they, think it was this been murder. In trouble otherwise. No, I think it was this murder. They found the phone he called from within minutes. The phone was still hanging as if he had not hung it back up and they pulled a partial wet palm thing off of the phone, meaning he had washed his hands or maybe he'd washed them in the lake or something, I don't know, but they never got anything out of it. Mm. It wasn't anything they could really use. But the weird thing was the phone he called from was very close to the police station and like 20 miles wow. from where he'd kill the people. I don't know. I don't know. That is unsettling, though. Well, he probably figured they would race out there first before right. they would figure out what phone he called from. And he was right. I guess, but they knew what phone he called from like immediately, and they were, they were there within oh, minutes. But yeah, you yeah said I that. don't know. Back at the Chronicle... Graysmith is able to win over Avery by actually contributing something of value. He proves himself to be no lightweight, regardless of Avery's continual ball busting. As Graysmith provides interpretation and insight into the Zodiac's words, Avery realizes that maybe this guy isn't just a jerk-off. Like, there's something that could come out of this. He knows what he's talking about. He's doing real work. One of Graysmith's insights about the letters is that Zodiac's reference to man as the most dangerous animal of them all is a reference to the film The Most Dangerous Game from 1932, which features the villainous Count Zaroff, with a Z, a wealthy aristocrat who hunts live human prey. This is a 1932 pre-code horror film based on a 1924 short story. It stars Fay Ray and other actors and producers from King Kong as they were filmed simultaneously, basically. I think they were filming The Most Dangerous Game at Night. Okay, wow. While they were filming King Kong. I just like the reference in Wedding Crashers (laughs) when Vince Vaughn (laughs) says The Most Dangerous Game. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. As I said, the friendship between Graysmith and Avery was kind of fictionalized, but it helps. For sure. Because it allows... Downey to shine. Right. Let him be funny, making fun of him. Let him be the cool guy. Two weeks later, October 11th, 1969, San Francisco taxi cab driver Paul Stein is shot and killed in the city's Presidio Heights district. Which feels like a different murder than the other ones. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think this is a turning point in the film, and everyone, for the most part, seems to say the Zodiac killed five people, and they include Paul Stein. That's definitive. Okay. But if you were going to start in with the theories that some people have about multiple people or copycats, it's either multiple people working together or copycats. This is the part where you start thinking, well, maybe other people would either are doing this or are involved in some way and they take over the mantle and that there was some sort of a a gap in the handwriting analysis. Because you have to remember, he cuts pieces of Stein's shirt off 
and sends them to in the letters. True. And the handwriting matches. So they yep. assume it's the same guy. That's mm-hmm. why. Because normally he's in a completely different area. I know. Completely different. There wouldn't MO. be anything tying these things no. together. They're not even the same at all about anything. The multiple killer. <laughs> just the scream technique. <laughs> if it wasn't for those letters, clearly we'd have a stronger case. I don't want to try to outthink the people that have dedicated their lives to this. I'm going to go with the consensus that Paul Stein is involved. It's actually what brings Toski into the movie at all, really. He would never have been involved if it wasn't for this murder. That's true, yeah. I think that the Zodiac was kind of a, a psycho evil genius, and he was intentionally trying to change his M.O. Because he had thought probably for years of how to plan this out, and he thought of everything that people usually get caught doing and just did it a different way. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't supernatural or completely devoid of any rational thinking because I think when the pressure starts getting on him, that's when he backs down, he stops doing it, and the letters stop, the killings stop, and that seems like more normal. But when he's like revving up into this, he's got yeah, this yeah. mapped out. And then he gets shaken a little bit when they get close, and then it, it shuts down, and it seems like at a certain point he doesn't murder anyone else. Right. And a lot of the things that are attributed to him, including scenes in this movie, mm-hmm. like the Ioni Sky one, which we'll get to, oh, yeah. I don't really know if that was him. He claimed it later, but right. Graysmith sort of debunks it himself by saying he only ever gave details that were in the paper, which totally, he had totally. not done with the yeah. previous stuff. He had provided details that were not in the paper. Uh-huh. So at a certain point, it seems like it, it does end. I know, and that the whole way that that goes down it seems out of character from the other two but or from the previous ones that we see but to your point i mean they're all kind of different yeah and it also could have been a spur of the moment he hadn't planned it but then he realized i could do this right now and then i could really fuck with them because then they're not going to know what the fuck is coming next Mm -hmm. i don't know who knows the cab scene on washington and cherry streets in san francisco could not be entirely shot in San Francisco due to filming restrictions and the opposition of the neighborhood residents. So the production constructed a set replicating the intersection, including the street, apartments, and crime scene at Downey Studios, just outside of Los Angeles. Backdrops of San Francisco were digitally inserted to complete the scene. Only a few seconds of actual footage shot at that crime scene remains in the film. That's another thing where I was like, okay, the budget. They're just recreating city streets on a lot. About a half hour into the film, and we're introduced to our third lead, Mark Ruffalo, as Inspector David Toski. His partner is Bill Armstrong, played by Anthony Edwards. Together, they work the case, as do Vallejo's Jack Molinax, played by Elias Coteus, and Captain Ken Narlo, played by Donal Logue, out of Napa. So yeah, it was Jennifer Aniston who had a conversation with David Fincher about co-stars that she liked working with. She mentioned Gyllenhaal and Ruffalo. Hmm was sort of a nice coincidence because I think Fincher already liked Gyllenhaal because of Donnie Darko, and so that yeah. all fit together. I remember the movie she was in with Jake Gyllenhaal. I'm trying to think what she was in with Mark Ruffalo. I saw the titles. I didn't write them down. Okay. Not important. Initially, Mark Ruffalo was not interested in the project, but Fincher wanted him to play David Toski. He met with the actor and told him that he was rewriting the screenplay. I loved what he was saying and loved where he was going with it, the actor remembers. For research, he read every report on the case and read all the books on the subject. Ruffalo met Toski and found out that he had, quote, perfect recall of the details and what happened when, where, and who was there. 
and what he was wearing. He always knew what he was wearing. I think it is seared into who he is, and it was a big deal for him. <laughs> well, obviously. <laughs> That's what this movie does a great job of, the mm-hmm. real life, the sanity-consuming obsession. It festers with these people, especially police. A lot of them who it's, work these cases, they can't let it go. It's wild, though. that It's years of your life. But there's a reason, and it's the same thing yeah. that happened to that guy who wrote the Chaos book about Manson right. and the Manson murders. You get that rush uh-huh. when you find out something. When you when you connect something to something, and it's, it feels like you're making actual progress, uh-huh. you get addicted to that and feeling because it is so crazy. Because you're thinking like, you're about to be a huge hero. I know, but it's also like a little bit blue velvet where you just got to keep pulling at that string. Like there's something at the other end, and right? You just can't stop going down that tunnel. I believe Gray Smith did eventually move on after he published the books. Mm-hmm. And it no longer was a day-to-day thing yeah, yeah. anymore. Because he's still alive, I believe. And I think he's just a pretty normal, well-adjusted guy who actually has a good relationship with his kids now. And no lingering good. effects of this. You love but to yet, hear that. But it still, it took up, what, 20 years, basically, yeah, yeah. of his life? Zodiac really captures the darker side of neo-noir and noir because it's real. It's terrible, and it never got resolved. You've already said it. A great comparison would be Memories of Murder. I think they go well together. Definitely. Great companion pieces. They're very similar films. I don't know that Zodiac would exist without Memories of Murder, but Bong Joon-ho loves this movie, voted for it in that Sight and Sound Top 250. He considers it one of the best films. He wrote the foreword to this David Fincher book right here, and he counts Zodiac as one of the best films. I do think that Zodiac has more of a pop, sensibility than memories of murder but that's probably just something well that's probably just in translation cultural for us yeah. yeah fincher thought of anthony edwards for the role of inspector william armstrong saying i knew i needed the most decent person i could find because <laughs> he would be the balance of the movie in a weird way this movie wouldn't exist without bill armstrong everything we know about the zodiac case we know because of his notes so in casting the part i wanted to get somebody who was totally reliable Anthony Edwards was also Fincher's neighbor at the oh, wow. time. So that was probably part of it. Gotta be honest, sort of a surprise to see him in this movie for me. I think he's good. Yeah, yeah. Not just in this movie, but in general. I don't know why he didn't get more character actor parts. He's not a leading man type. Right. But yeah, highly capable of. Because know, he's a good actor and he looks like a real person. Yeah, yeah. He fits into things like this. Right. Perfectly. This was still before the cutoff. You know, now there are no one. <laughs> That looks like real people in movies. Well, I was thinking about this in terms of Anthony Edwards already, but you have to rely sometimes on guys like a Fincher or a Tarantino or somebody who's got all kinds of power because they're the ones that can cast whoever they want. (laughs) If he wants Anthony Edwards, he's going to put Anthony Edwards in it, whereas your typical director who does a studio job is not going to have that much influence especially casting the lesser roles. Oh, yeah. In order to ensure that it's him who is implicated, the Zodiac mails pieces of Stein's blood-stained shirt to the Chronicle, along with another taunting letter. You can tell that the Zodiac's having a lot of fun with it now. He's changing MOs. He's taunting the police. That seems to be, as the mm-hmm. story unfolds that seems to be his focus then is oh, having yeah. fun with his letters and taunting he's more liking so than the, the attention killing. and the interest yeah more i think more so than the killing right. at a certain point 
he uh, seems to lose interest in the killing mm-hmm. because it seemed like he had plenty of opportunity to do more, whoever he was, and then just didn't. Or did and decided not to tell people about it, but that seems pretty unlikely right. considering his whole thing seemed to be to tell everyone. Now that Toski's involved, he's connected with our boys over at the paper, so we get our stars together. Although, honestly, Gyllenhaal and Ruffalo, they are on the screen together about halfway through the movie, but they don't really start having scenes and interacting until the movie's almost over. There's maybe 40 minutes left, no, and all no. of a sudden they're a team for <laughs> the last 40 minutes. Yeah. They're like a team by default. He's got to use Graysmith almost as an avatar at that point because he can't really right. work it anymore. In the film, Graysmith mentions Toski wears his gun like Bullet. Avery replies that Bullet got it from Toski, who was the inspiration for Steve McQueen's performance in Bullet. Which is a cool factoid. As part of his most recent letter, the Zodiac has threatened to kill a school bus full of children. The Chronicle prints the letter but omits the threat about the school bus not wanting to cause a citywide panic although it eventually gets out anyway. Mm-hmm. Philip Baker Hall. I know, I love to see it. Showing up Hard as the eight. handwriting expert. Yeah. And that guy from the episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> or Boogie Nights. Totally. <laughs> the Zodiac has now arrived in San Francisco. The school bus threat goes public, and a psychopath holds a city and beyond hostage. Dermot Mulroney as Toski and Armstrong's captain. In some of the scenes, he was... I guess wearing a barely perceptible fat suit because Fitcher didn't think he was fat enough and thought he was in too good a shape. Wow, that's weird. I was I didn't notice looking that. for yeah. it and I didn't even notice anything. No. He must have been skinny, really skinny in those days or something. I guess. There's recognizable faces everywhere in this movie. Some of them are probably going to get left out. It's interesting though that it, this police chief needs to be tubby. <laughs> well, he was basing them off of the real people. Yeah, I know. <laughs> He, to a but, fault, I think. I, really? To being annoying. Yeah. Because a fat suit doesn't look better. Now that the Zodiac has arrived in San Francisco, everything is plunged into chaos. But in a way, it feels good. Mm-hmm. It feels like it has to happen in order to actually get it going anywhere. Right. Because, as I said, this is pre-serial killers being a big thing that everyone knew about and talked about and understood in any way. There's no sharing of information. There's no coordination going on. It's total fucking nonsense what's happening. And this guy's laughing at everyone because he's figured out these little loopholes of how to fuck everybody over by moving around the different areas. Geography really matters. Geography, MOs, the things that cops always use. Because most killers are kind of the same. They kind of do the similar things. Predictable after a while. A trend usually forming. They actually have a trying to coordinate 1969 montage about Telefax and the different offices and the different people and this and that and everything. But as time goes on, they're coming up with theories. They're getting little pieces of information that they think are true. They think that there's a pretty good chance that the Zodiac is ex-military. He was wearing military boots that you can't buy unless you have a military ID based on some footprints that were discovered at one of the scenes. There's a lot of different things happening, but it doesn't ever feel like they're that close yet. So Toski and Armstrong, they get called into it thinking that it's probably a pretty straightforward robbery of a taxi driver that went wrong. They have no idea what they're going into. And there's this piece of music that plays throughout the film. Mm -hmm. It's by Charles Ives, and it is from, I believe, 1906. And conveniently or appropriately, it's called The Unanswered Question. Oh, 
it's just four notes. It's this kind of repeating thing that's kind of in the background to supplement the score. And you really start to notice it. And it's this poignant moment in a weird way when you rewatch the film and you understand what they're walking into and how this is going to affect their lives. And this music is sort of sad and lonesome and it's just sort of out there. And yep, this is it. We're being sucked into something and we have no (laughs) idea where this is headed. There's some racial mix-up that seems to fuck over things right away because later on they realize that two cops saw someone that may have been the Zodiac leaving the scene of the Stein murder, but at that moment, because of wrong information that was being disseminated, they were looking for a black person, not white. Yeah. It was quickly corrected, but by the time it was corrected, that guy was gone. Now they're looking for someone with a crew cut, which also fits in with the military, stocky, and lumbering is a phrase they use, which you would think would kind of be throwaway, but then you notice... He is lumbering. Arthur Lee Allen limps and lumbers. The guy at the end, played by Charles yep. Fleischer, is lumbering all of a sudden, <laughs> right. and you're like, everybody's lumbering. People can barely walk. <laughs> What's going on? Graysmith's son feels like the stand-in for Fincher himself when you oh, yeah. think about his dad telling him about the story, his son just sort of soaking in the information. Yeah. There's a Stones concert mentioned on the radio. Of course, that was Altamont, where someone was stabbed. Oh, boy. And that Melvin Belli guy, played by Brian Cox, is the one that convinced the Stones to do that concert. Oh, really? Wow. So, yeah, the 60s were ending real hard during this time period. You got Zodiac and Manson. You got Altamont. Trying to picture being Graysmith's son. Right now, you're still kind of in a normal state. Like, what happens is just watch your dad for, like, years be like, well, it seems Obsessed, like maybe notes, they tried to hide TV. some of it yeah, yeah. from the kids a little bit. Sorry, kids. Your dad has an unhealthy obsession. With a serial killer. Yeah. Someone claiming to be the Zodiac continues to send taunting letters and speaks on the phone with lawyer Melvin Belli, played by Brian Cox, on the KGO-TV morning talk show hosted by Jim Dunbar. Oh, yeah, what is this guy supposed to... Is he like Dr. Drew? I think it's just a normal morning show on a local channel. Yeah. Melvin Belli is a guest. This mm-hmm. was all arranged by someone claiming yeah. to be the Zodiac, who refers to himself as Sam on the air. Gary Oldman was evidently supposed to play Melvin Belli at one point. There's t- it turned into some weird thing where his representatives were denying it, even though there were articles reporting he had been cast. I think maybe they were upset because... He lost the part or Fincher decided to go in a different direction because I think he just was like, he's not fat enough. Graysmith himself, believe it or not, who I guess maybe isn't accustomed to Fincher, Hollywood these, things. These uh, actors are just driving him nuts with their weight. Well, he spit it out that they did hire Oldman at one point, Graysmith did, which contradicted Oldman's people when they were like flipping out and saying it wasn't true <laughs> back in 2005 or whenever that was. Oh my gosh. So it does seem so like Oldman important. was cast at one point. They were trying to use some sort of a contraption to make him look more like however Melvin Belli looked. And I, I think if I was guessing, I would just say they came to a point where they're like, this is not going to happen. And then <laughs> they cast someone who looked way different. There's no way to know if the person speaking with Melvin Belli on the show is actually the Zodiac. Everyone is him. No one is him. We're all the Zodiac. Don't you get it? It's not him. Mm-hmm. In one of the... Ciphers, the one that was cracked in 2020, he actually says it was not me on the TV. 
<laughs> it doesn't seem like it's him. No, I the know. The voice never matched. The people who heard his voice from the police calls never said that voice was the same. It never really right. It meant doesn't anything. feel like then it. They, at any I think point. they eventually traced it to a a mental institution mm-hmm. <laughs> or something. But it it adds to what I think Fincher's trying to cook here with this too, especially with what happens with Graysmith eventually, and then you start seeing the Zodiac everywhere. So this is like planting that seed where you realize. In a world full of copycats, you have no idea how to I tell. I know this what's could be real. anybody. We don't even know if all of the murders that are attributed to the Zodiac are actually him. Totally. June Diane Raphael plays Toski's wife. Not much for the women in this movie. No, not a ton of lines either. You didn't even know it was her. Yeah, I didn't she recognize doesn't speak her, yeah. very much. I've always been a fan, though. Yeah, no, I do like her. I just it didn't jump out to me. But they have to explore every conceivable angle at this point. It's just going all over the place. And you can kind of feel, now that months have been going by, mm-hmm. you can already kind of feel it slipping. Because the longer anything like this drags on, especially if he's not committing new crimes, which he doesn't at a certain point, everything gets older and faded. Yep. And then Toski eventually has to point that out to Graysmith like the farther this goes the less likely we're ever going to catch him because right. no one's going to remember anything and the evidence disappears and fades and erodes and whatever on November 8th my birthday 1969 the Zodiac mailed a cipher to the San Francisco Chronicle I was actually born in 1969 you were that's what I meant <laughs> by my birthday on November 8th 1969 the Zodiac mailed a cipher to the San Francisco Chronicle with 63 unique characters this was the hardest code to crack taking just over 51 years finally being solved on December 5th 2020 by a team of cryptographers man people were bored during Very, covid uh, invested <laughs> in this yeah all of a sudden covid hits and we're we're pulling these things back out let's try to solve this shit such a thankless existence I guess you get a little bit of fame out of all of this, but I don't know. I can think of a lot more ways to spend my time. It was discovered that some letters in the alphabet were never used at all in the deciphered message. J, Q, X, Y, and Z. That eight letters were represented by a single symbol and that the others were represented by between two and ten symbols, a few of which were the actual letter. The message reads, including misspellings, I hope you are having lots of fun and trying to catch me. That wasn't me on the TV show, which brings up a point about me. I am not afraid of the gas chamber because it will send me to paradise all the sooner because I now have enough slaves to work for me where everyone else has nothing when they reach paradise, so they are afraid of death. I am not afraid because I know that my new life is life will be an easy on in paradise death. Mm-hmm. This so guy has uh, a sentence at the end. Yeah, very confident about his spiritual beliefs. Well, that's true, but much like Son of Sam, it could be bullshit. Absolutely. Well, it's obviously bullshit, but yeah. b- bullshit that he believes. In. Right. But yes, this does seem to suggest definitively that whoever was on the phone on the TV show was not the Zodiac, but I chose to use that as the opening clip for this episode because. What else are you going to choose? Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's a million things you could choose. We're into 1970 now. A woman is flagged down on the road, told that her back tire is coming loose, and a man offers to help her tighten it. But really what he's doing is loosening it so that it falls off immediately. <laughs> Ugh, it's he a then brutal offers scene. to give her a ride. Yeah. There's a little more suspense in this one. Yeah. 
Ione Sky plays the woman. She's actually the real life daughter of Donovan, who sings Hurdy Gurdy Man. Right. So I'm assuming that was intentional. Okay. To tie all those Weird little yeah, tie in. Are you okay? Yeah. Yeah, we're fine. Must have been worse than I thought. I can give you a lift to a service station. Okay. I didn't know you had a baby. Oh, is that okay? The more the merrier. You shouldn't smoke. We just passed a filling station. It was closed. Do you always go around helping people in the night? When I'm done with them, they don't need much help. Before I kill you, I'm gonna throw your baby out the window. Again, no way to know what's real, what's true. Is this the Zodiac? I don't know. He claimed it was later in one of his letters, but as Graysmith points out, he didn't really provide anything definitive. Mm -hmm. I think at a certain point he realized it was easier to pretend to do crimes and just have his fun with the letters because it took out a lot of the risk, I guess. And if you lose that drive, I have no idea what it's like to want to actually kill someone, but I would imagine that there is, for some people, that thing, if it's just gone, it's gone, and it takes something to kill somebody. Yeah. And if it's not there, even if you've done it before, I mean, maybe he just lost interest. This tactic is really haunting, though, the pulling up. Yeah, because even if it isn't the Zodiac, yeah. it still clearly was a bad situation. Seriously. <laughs> pulling up behind and then saying, I'm going to help fix your car and then loosening the tire. Yeah. I don't know. It's just really unsettling that someone would do this. When the story hits the newspapers and you see that headline mm-hmm. underneath it, it says, well, it says, woman says Zodiac killer captured her. And then under it, it says McClatchy newspaper service. So for our listeners in Pittsburgh, maybe a cold shiver went down their spine hearing the name McClatchy. Kevin McClatchy owned the Pittsburgh Pirates at one point and one of the worst owners in baseball I had no history. idea. Uh, I had no idea where this was going. No longer associated with the Pirates. For those of you who don't live in Pittsburgh and know the Pirates to be a, a franchise that was under 500 for 20 plus years and all that whole horrible that was the mcclatchy era okay and if you go on the mcclatchy newspapers service wikipedia he is still prominently listed i just was like this is so weird that this is in this movie but yes it's a family that owned mm-hmm. and operated tons of newspapers for many many decades montage of letters threats taunts claims and games but time keeps moving and no one has been arrested at this point at least According to the film, there aren't even any real suspects. Avery shows Graysmith that the Zodiac is likely full of shit, at least in terms of his recent claims. Maybe he did not abduct the woman at all. No more printing the letters in the newspaper. That's the new policy. Fuck this guy. Yeah. 
We have to move on. We're just giving him attention. We're tired of stroking his ego. It's a bad precedent to right. start doing shit like this. But then they discover there's a brand of watches called Zodiac, which uses the same symbol as the killer. Which, when you bring the that up... The significance of the symbol is like heavily debated. But the fact that the name of the watch is yeah, Zodiac with the same symbol? <laughs> and then, of course, Arthur Leon has a Zodiac watch. That's that hilarious, symbol. yeah. When a slowdown in communication occurs, you can feel the grind. This feels essential to telling this specific story this way. Mm-hmm. We're not glamorizing this and making it seem fun and exciting and cool. It's similar to Chinatown in that respect because it encapsulates futility. Oh, I know. This is just a movie about futility, you really. You cannot win. You can't overcome this giant hurdle, this thing that's weighing you down carrying it like a backpack full of bricks they just cannot well right and then when you factor in the fact that it's real uh-huh the the ciphers and the unique aspects of this unknown killer and then the more salacious details that always accompany true crime this thing is yeah. a perfect storm of interest totally at least on the surface and then i think that the public will largely move on if they aren't kept abreast of all the new developments mm-hmm. going on they kind of are like all right well he hasn't killed anybody else, so let's move on to the next thing. As you pointed out, there were other serial killers in California to think about, plus Son of Sam at one point gets started. Just really a dark time. Well, I think there was much more publicity yeah. about serial killers. There's probably plenty of serial killers operating right now I that know. we just don't really hear about. because It just doesn't impact society the way Well, I think did. they realized that making big things about them may lead to more. Right. Because the copycat killings is a huge thing. And I think totally. that the Zodiac himself probably inspired plenty of copycats. So just less coverage. Things ramp up when the killer sends a bloody shirt piece to Avery and then threatens him. This leads to a significant downward trend in Avery's life, at least according to the film. I think the yeah. film exaggerated it a little bit. It makes it seem like he just went off planet Earth at a certain point. Right. And that was not the case. He still was a journalist and actually published a book about Patty Hearst, okay, which he go. covered. It, yes, it does this. make it seem like the, he goes on an insane downward spiral from this moment forward. We never see his wife, who they mention. Yeah. He did have kids, too. They never show uh-huh. them or mention them. All of a sudden, he's living on a boat later. As like a <laughs> like, hermit, yeah. <laughs> Step aboard. Graysmith starts dating a girl named Melanie, played by Chloe Sevigny. She'll later refer to this as the date that never ended, and I don't think this is the only thing I've ever heard that expression in, but it is kind of true because he doesn't exactly hide his obsession about the Zodiac, and she seems okay with it probably because she can't imagine that this is going to go on for years Just uh, putting it all out on Front Street on the first date. Yeah, and it kind of makes him seem interesting. Well, yeah, you do get that part. They're on this little adventure almost, even though it's like, watching paint dry because they're just sitting around. Well, it's not a bad move if you're having trouble thinking of how to (laughs) seal the deal with a girl that may agree to go out on a date with you. Come up with something that makes it seem like something's going on. Yeah. Because all of a sudden you're bonded together by whatever it is. I don't know how you're going to do that. (laughs) I'm not telling you to kill people and create a serial killer that you'll then investigate yourself. Uh, (laughs) No, that would be a bad move. (laughs) I'm just saying that if you can get a situation going where the focus then becomes the situation and not the date. That's a... Oof. oof that's... That's <laughs> a stroke of genius. Yeah, that's... <laughs> whoa. <laughs> Write a book. And You're operating on a whole other level. 
It feels like a wild goose chase. Tips come flooding in after the Zodiac stuff starts going public about the threats and that he's in San Francisco. But one tip that comes in directly to Avery leads him down to Riverside, which is actually down by L.A. We know that from the O.C. Sure do. It's sort of like Buffalo Bill because now we're being tied back in with a quote-unquote first victim that predates even the the two that I mentioned. Correct. This name, I think it's Sherry Joe or something like that, is a girl who went to college down there. There's enough similarities, enough weirdness around this unsolved murder from years prior, I think mid-60s, early 60s. So Avery goes down there. He ends up screwing over the cops because he delivers this information directly to the Riverside Police Department and not San Francisco Police Department. So again, you're getting into this whole jurisdiction, sharing information, what the fuck is going on. And I think Avery really pisses off Toski in a way that probably hurts any collaboration moving forward between him... I'd say so. ...and the cops. When he goes public with the idea that the Zodiac may have killed a woman years prior in Riverside, California, which is a completely different part of the state. I know, we're talking hours. You're now plunging in a whole other highly populated area into a frenzy and into a panic. But you're also fucking up that case because the police in Riverside don't think it was the Zodiac and they have a suspect, Mm -hmm. who it may very well have been. But if you convince everyone publicly that it was the Zodiac, and he will... Who's the other guy? Because why wouldn't the public want to believe? Because that's more fun and salacious and they get swept up in it. So then once that's published, you're fucking up not only the Zodiac case, but this other case. The Sherry Joe thing I don't think was ever adjudicated in any way. I don't know if anyone ever was charged and convicted with that. Mm. So I didn't follow up on that. I don't know. Hmm. There's a lot of other murders that we're not sure about. So who knows? Maybe he did kill 37 people. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. Come peace. I don't want any trouble. Dave. I really don't want to touch you right now, Paul. Just trying to Not do my now. job. Oh, oh, really? Well, now I can't do mine. We're already screwed up the amount of tips we got on this thing, and, and you've just freaked out the entire state. I've got Napa, Vallejo, and DOJ looking at me sideways, and Riverside's telling me I'm on a snipe hunt. Jesus, man, Sherry Joe Bates was a gift. I gave that to you. You and Armstrong never would have found This may not be Zodiac. Does that matter to you? Does it matter what that Riverside is? may not be able to make a case against their suspect because of you? Tell it to Sherwood. I'm out here beating the bushes, trying to draw them out. We're in this together. Well, we're not in anything together, Paul, because I'm not interested in upping my circulation. Oh, boy. He wrote me. He threatened my life. Hey, bullet. Been a year and a half. You're going to catch this fucking guy or not? Go fuck yourself. Happily. You should have called me, Paul. In 1971, it finally feels like some progress is made, and the film can now properly launch into its thesis that Arthur Lee Allen was the Zodiac Killer. Initially, it was some loose lips with a co-worker back on January 1st, 1968, where he may have revealed everything before it even started by claiming he would kill people under the name Zodiac, and he had it all worked out, and he was giving out specifics. That seems pretty damning. But the co-worker's initial attempts at tipping off police were lost in the shuffle. Oof. Allen is portrayed in the film by John Carroll Lynch. He emerges as a suspect in Vallejo. And when we first hear about Allen, it almost all seems too good to be true. I know. He's a perfect suspect. He's a pedophile convicted. He has 
a history of misspellings and creepy letters. They find out pretty early on he's ambidextrous, so when his handwriting is weird or doesn't match, and then when he walks into the room, he has a limp, which fits in with lumbering. Lumbering. Everything just, like, boom, boom. Everything is fitting with what they already know. He sounds like our guy. But again, it's all circumstantial. Mm -hmm. Arthur Lee Allen is played by John Carroll Lynch on October 6th, 1969, so prior to Toski and Armstrong showing up. The real Arthur Lee Allen was interviewed by a Vallejo PD detective whose name was John Lynch. Really doesn't mean anything other than it's a weird coincidence. Totally. Toski Armstrong and Vallejo's Mullinax interview and question Arthur Lee Allen. They notice he wears a Zodiac wristwatch with the same logo used by the killer, leading Toski to be convinced they've got their oh, guy. Oh, yeah, dude. They come out of this interview like... I would be. No, I know. Well, that was weird. As far as like the strength of circumstantial yeah. evidence, I feel like having a watch with the name Zodiac on it and that symbol and being linked already outside right. of the watch. Right. Like right. You're not just using the watch because obviously other people bought the watch. I-, I think Zodiac is owned by Fossil now. I don't know if they still have an imprint label, but they were around for a while. Other <laughs> people owned the watch, but... Yeah, yeah. You're being brought this guy. He's wearing this fucking watch. Acting super weird and shady and shifty. And then other stuff we learn later. Oh, yeah. Way later. Like he cleaned out his trailer two days after this. Right. All of a sudden, it was like they were onto him. He had to shift gears. Yeah, there's tons of shit. It all works. I would put that wristwatch at an 8 out of 10 for circumstantial. That feels oh, yeah. unbelievable to me. But- it proves nothing. Totally. As does most of this. It doesn't actually prove anything. It just seems super suspicious. I told all this to the other officer. Which other officer? From Vallejo. Do you remember his name? No, but it was right after the murder at the lake. And what did you tell this officer? I told him that I'd gone to Salt Point that weekend to skin dive. That I was alone, but I met a couple there. I have their names at home if you want. That would be great, Arthur. Lee. What? Lee. Nobody calls me Arthur. Also, that day when I came home, my neighbor saw me. It was around four, but I forgot to tell the other officer that. Neighbor's name? Bill White. He died a week or so afterwards heart attack, so I didn't think to call to follow up. The knives I had in my car with the blood on them, that blood came from a chicken that I killed for dinner. What? I had knives in my car that weekend. Maybe Bill saw them and called the other officer on me. Well, we'll be checking in on that. Uh, Let me ask you something else. Were you ever in Southern California? At any time in 1966? Is this about the Riverside killing? Yes. Well, I guess I was there around that time. I used to go down there a lot. I like the auto races. Foreman says that you're ambidextrous? No, that's untrue. You can't write with both hands. My teachers tried to make me when I was a kid, but I couldn't. I'm left-handed. He also said that you made statements about killing school children. That is... That is horrible. That is... 
That's a horrible thing to say. So you aren't angry about being fired from Valley Springs for touching your students? I'm not the Zodiac. And if I was, I certainly wouldn't tell you. Uh, that, that, that's a nice watch. Thank you. May I see it? May I see it? Where'd you get it? It's a Christmas gift from my mother two years ago. That's very sweet. So tell me something, Arthur. You don't remember anyone you might have had a conversation with regarding the Zodiac? Maybe. Ted Kidder of Phil Tucker uh, at Vallejo Recreation. But I couldn't be positive. I used to work there. Oh. The most dangerous game. What? The most dangerous game. That's why you're here, isn't it? It was my favorite book in high school. It's about this man who waits for people to get shipwrecked on his island. Because he was tired of hunting animals, he hunted the people for the challenge. And Man is the most dangerous animal of all. That's the whole point of the story. Great book. Or at least that's what I told Phil. May I go? Sure. Everyone is very fired up about the possibility of Arthur Lee Allen being their guy for Zodiac. Even Alan's own brother and sister-in-law seem very willing to believe it could be him. <laughs> A little too willing, frankly. No, they seem very convinced that it probably is him. However, the handwriting expert insists that Alan did not write the Zodiac letters, even though rumors persist about Alan being ambidextrous. And the film <laughs> yeah, makes yeah. sure to include the fact that there is some differing schools of thought totally. on ambidextry. And, and how that looks. And from here on, it's like the credibility of people <laughs> reporting on this, investigating it, being experts on things. The credibility just keeps getting called into question by different people and by you, the viewer. Intentionally so. Right. That fits in with the, the waters whole get muddied. thing about futility. It's, when you think you've taken a step forward, you've actually taken two back. Mm -hmm. Because now you've disproved something else that you were building on. I don't know anything about handwriting analysis, but it makes sense to me yeah. that a disagreement over what an ambidextrous person does could be enough to throw this off, especially if you factor in the fact that this guy seemed to know what to do to keep people from figuring out who he was. I know. So is it beyond the realm of possibility that he would change his writing style no. from time to time and mess with people? I don't think so, especially since... I don't know the character's name. Philip Baker Hall's character says at one point that the K changed in the ones that are definitely right. from the Zodiac. And he said that he hadn't really seen things like that before. So that leads me to think that maybe the Zodiac's doing that on purpose. And I know no, from I my know. own handwriting that most Sherwood of the time was his name. it's similar. But there are times where I write completely differently for some reason. I've noticed that. Now, maybe a handwriting expert would look at it and say, no, this is the same even though it looks different, I don't know. You would look at mine and just be like, just awful. 
Some, yeah, sometimes just I just I do letters completely <laughs> differently. Coherent. Sometimes I just draw a line as a letter, just yeah. like a line. Like, there it is. They'd be like, this person needs to stop writing by hand and type from here on out. I can please. actually write by hand really nice when I try. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I can't. Sometimes it gets a little wild. Avery becomes more and more paranoid after being threatened by the Zodiac in a letter. He turns to drugs and alcohol, carrying a gun on him at all times. But he's done himself no favors with law enforcement after the Riverside snafu. The case's notoriety weighs on Toski, who cannot sit through Dirty Harry, a Hollywood film loosely based on the Zodiac case. By the way, the bar that Avery always goes to, Morty's, mm-hmm. take out that apostrophe. Mortis is death in Latin. So oh, well, there you go, how about man. that? How about that? Morty's looks like a place I'd like to hang out, though. Yeah, it looks awesome. Yeah. Bars back in the day are so much cooler looking than bars I now. Know. I would rather a shitty old TV than like 16 flat screen TVs I everywhere. I know. Everything just had more character. I'm watching the big games oh, at yeah. my house. Everyone is- a- I want a shitty, yeah. horrible place to just spend an hour in. The one TV that's like up on a stand in the corner and yeah. everybody's looking up at it. Yeah. Clint Eastwood refused to grant permission for his image to be shown in the film. However, I don't know if you noticed, John Vernon from Savage Streets- Whoa. Is in the clip of Dirty okay. Harry. I didn't notice I that. I recognized no. that voice immediately. <laughs> I was like, there he is. That's a pull. Go fucking iceberg. <laughs> <laughs> There's some time lapse of some construction on that building. That seemed pretty cool. Even though, again, that kind of fell into the uncanny valley thing that didn't look right to me. Yeah, I'm with you. It almost seemed a little bit out of place in this movie, but it did look good. It was cool. It was yeah. a cool idea. But I think the digital. Right. It just, I don't know. It didn't look real to me and it almost makes it seem like it's not the same period yeah because that building design modern. is a little yeah. futuristic but yeah i think that's when it really was built, i know obviously. i know and i yeah. i wasn't thinking that it wasn't but it just doesn't have the right look for the right. well that's period. partly because it's digital as it's yeah. being built up right. it kind of just seems too new looking somehow time passes quickly as the zodiac seems to slow down by the way the tunnel vision of alan may have prevented police from looking closely at other suspects. However, it feels like you might be able to make the case that it caused Alan to chill if he was, in fact, the Zodiac, which they talk about later. Mm -hmm. You can feel the desperation because time is everything. In 72, Toski and Armstrong, along with their captain, are finally able to secure a search warrant for a trailer where Alan is living in Santa Rosa, so it's a different county than Vallejo where they've already struck out. His trailer is fucking weird. Dude, that should be enough. Just b- march a jury into this trailer. <laughs> Show him the like, squirrels. <laughs> yeah. Do you think this guy is a serial killer? Clearly, when he opens the refrigerator and reacts and says squirrels, I, know. I think you're supposed to understand he's eating these squirrels. Ugh. If I was those squirrels, I think I would rise up. I think the four or five of us running around, we could attack those eyes or something when he's asleep. I know. I don't know. Maybe try somewhere Only one was in a cage. It's fight or flight. Either one would be good. They could have a mutiny and rise up and take him over or leave. There's (laughs) plenty of other places for squirrels to live. And then Toski's like, close that door. There's rodents in here. And I was like, wouldn't you want them to run out? No kidding. Even though Alan's home is chock full of weird and seemingly incriminating shit, they ultimately strike out because the guns there don't match anything. Mm-hmm. There's just a, a bunch of rodents, but not any actual bloody evidence or clothes or anything like that. The ballistics, no match. Prints, no match. 
writing no match. Their captain is like, hey, guys, this isn't the guy. We wanted it to be the guy. We thought it was the guy, but we can't have it be the guy. Yeah. If you bring me real evidence, it can be the guy again. But this is just circumstantial stuff. We did what we do. We got a warrant. We searched. We found nothing. It's a dead end mm-hmm. at that point because what else can you do? Yeah. They don't have enough. The boots and the gloves to me, I know it's circumstantial, but... Maybe if they actually found the boots... Yeah, true. ...and matched them to the print, that would help. For but sure. But still, it's not illegal to own boots. I know. And it's not illegal to own boots that are that brand and that size. That's still just circumstantial coincidental. Oh, it just seems like too coincidental. Four years pass. Avery leaves the Chronicle for the Sacramento Bee, an obvious downgrade, the implication being he spiraled. Oh, yeah. A bit too much. Maybe a little far too many drinks at Morty's. Even though Downey Jr. feels like the second lead at the beginning of the film, he definitely recedes far oh, yeah. back. Absolutely. Because I think. More than half of the film, really. The whole case defeated him. Well, I think it was the personal threat. Yeah. He lost his mind a little bit. Toski's partner, Armstrong transfers to a different department, seemingly signaling that he's aware enough to not let this entirely consume his life. He has a family, too, and he makes a choice for his family, which is a choice that Graysmith and Toski really don't make. Toski tries. Graysmith doesn't even try. And they make it about the case a little bit, although the hours that they seemingly have to do for homicide... Like the on-call. Well, yeah, I'm sure they were making an insane amount of money in 1969 because I'm sure when the Zodiac shit hit, it was unlimited overtime, which cops love, and because you get time and a half. Right, right. I'm sure they were making bank, but yeah, it was probably a lot of 12, 16, 18-hour days, maybe 24-hour days, and then eventually you're realizing... We're not actually gonna catch this guy. Mm -hmm. I think it just took longer for some people to understand. Armstrong was probably like, hey, good luck, guys. I, I hope know. you do catch him. And it's him. almost like... But, come on. It's almost not enough, just the four years later thing. I don't know how else you do it. I know there was a different version, but that's a long time. <laughs> well, if it was a miniseries, maybe they would have explored some of the other suspects during those yeah, four yeah. years. But the movie is already way totally, too bloated totally. with stuff to cram I know. Else in I there. don't think you could have added stuff, but... The significance of four years and these guys are still going. Especially when you realize at the end of the film, which is still mind-blowing to me because I'm always surprised by this. I think I've only ever seen this movie maybe three or four times. Mm -hmm. Every time, I'm like, what the fuck? Graysmith doesn't know anything about Arthur Lee Allen until he gets there himself Right at the very end of the movie, which is so confusing to me. Because there's all of those scenes of Toski and him together, yeah, right. and Toski never mentioned this name. Even though Toski was convinced this is the guy. At that point, we'll, well, we'll, we'll, get okay, yeah, we'll yeah, make that yeah. argument. Right. I think the, the idea is he was out. He was mm-hmm. done, and he was following the rules. Oh, yeah. But then he starts, he's doing a little bit, a mm-hmm. little bit of helping, and then it comes Still more and more there. and more. Yeah. But then probably because he's a cop, he realized... I can't poison this investigation. Once he I realized know. that maybe Graysmith was doing okay at a certain point, not when he eventually tells him Arthur Lee Allen, because right. at that point he's at the end of his rope, but when he's first helping him, mm-hmm. the first times, he's thinking, okay, this guy's actually doing decent. I'm not going to mention that name because I want to know if he gets to the same Totally, guy. I know. And then when he does, that's what convinces him to come back. <laughs> 
Just when I thought I was out. <laughs> that itch that needs to be scratched. Avery's living on a fucking boat at this point, playing Pong, the earliest know. version of a video game. My future. How, how are you? Fantastic. I mean, admittedly, the being ain't exactly the crown, but fuck it, right? Do you want a drink? I don't have anything blue, but I got... Don't worry about that. Don't, don't worry about it. No bother at all. Nobody comes back from the old days. To your health. Mine. Mostly mine. So, um... What's new? I've been thinking. Yeah. Somebody should write a book. Somebody should write a fucking book, that's for sure. About what? About Zodiac. It's not new. I've been thinking that if you put all the information together, maybe you could jog something loose. And then I was thinking that nobody knows the case better than you. Yeah, and you know all the players, and you, you have all the files. Lost them. You lost them? Or, or I tossed them. I don't know, I moved onto a boat. You know that we work in the daily business, right? As in today. What do you think we were doing back then? Do you know that more people die in the East Bay commute every three months than that idiot ever killed? He offed a few citizens, he wrote a few letters, and he faded into footnote. Not that I haven't been sitting here idly waiting for you to drop by and reinvigorate my sense of purpose. It's four years ago, let fucking go. You're wrong. It was important. Then what did you ever do about it? If it was so fucking important, what did you ever do? You hovered over my desk, you stole from wastebaskets. Am I being unkind? Oh, that's right, I forgot. You went to the library. I'm sorry I bothered you. Avery's a dead end at this point for Graysmith. I know. He's, it's a sad He's scene, out of it. He's right? not interested in helping. You can feel the tension growing as well for the situation at home between Graysmith and Melanie, who is now his wife, and they do have kids. Look, it's a PSA for everyone at home. Women, pay attention to them. Honey, we're not changing. <laughs> People what don't saw, actually change. What you saw on that first date is what you got. If he's obsessed with something before you get married, he's not going to change once you're married. And if he does, he'll change for himself. Mm-hmm. People, it's not just women. I'm just joking. It's men and women. Oh, totally. and it's not just relationships. People are who they are, yeah. It's your friends. Right. It's your family. Everyone is like this. Everyone is a complete narcissist on some instinctual level. Sure. They believe people should change for them. <laughs> and sometimes they're right. Honestly, if you make a commitment to another person and have children with them, you should make the decisions for your family. Sure. But he doesn't. But the signs were there. So, ladies, if you think I'm getting rid of this Blu-ray collection, (laughs) you got nothing (laughs) coming. (laughs) No, but seriously, I get that she thought that this was going to go away. Why would you think this would go on forever? But at the same time, you can't say that you're surprised. You're on a date with a beautiful woman. And you're immediately distracted by this. The yeah. first time you're meeting her, it seems like. It seems like that was a setup or something. And then 
he's off. He's got to make phone calls and get into. The, it's like yeah, he can't stop for a minute, you even thought, on a first date. You know, after that first date, she would have gone and talked to her, some of her friends, and they would have just been like, "Get out." He's a cartoonist. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> he's a what? Yeah. That, that's, that's a, a job? job. Yeah. I thought the people that just wrote the articles just scribbled something. <laughs> Every year, Toski is still visiting the intersection where the cab driver was murdered on the anniversary, clearly indicating that he's not letting it go. By 78, Graysmith has started contacting and bothering Toski about the Zodiac murders, and eventually he does impress him with his knowledge of the case. While Toski cannot directly give Graysmith access to the evidence, he provides names in other police departments where Zodiac murders occurred, <laughs> basically insinuating... In those boondock departments, yeah, they'll yeah. probably just let you look at it. But sure. in San Francisco, this is a real department. We can't let you in here. <laughs> and that is exactly what happens. Totally. He's like, all right, well, go talk to Ken Narlo in Napa. Mm-hmm. You know Donald Logue will let you look at those things. Yep, sure does. And he doesn't. Oh. <laughs> because he sends him to Jack Mullen. That's right, over yeah. in Vallejo. Uh-huh. And Elias Coteas, he's like, fuck it. Look yeah, at yeah, whatever Casey you Jones. That's why he does it, yeah. Yeah. He remembered his days with the turtles, and was, <laughs> even though that hadn't happened yet. <laughs> the movie now pivots back to being Gyllenhaal's, officially. Because there is a stretch where it belongs to Ruffalo. For sure. And Gyllenhaal's not in it for much, for about 30 or 40 minutes. And then the last 45 minutes to an hour are really exciting and fun. It's frustrating and infuriating. Yeah. Because you know that they're not going right. to solve it. The pace is definitely all building up to that one last exciting scene at the house. The whole time of Graysmith really ramping it up, his investigation is fun. True. Because he's working outside of the confines of being a policeman, Mm -hmm. so he's jumping to all these different places. He's doing things they're telling him not to do because (laughs) he doesn't have to worry about getting fired from being a cop. Totally. Eventually, he does lose his job as a cartoonist, but... (laughs) He was meant for bigger things. Fake job. Clearly. Come on. Because this is his passion, and he's good at it. Right. And he's good at it in a way that worked. I think that if Arthur Lee Allen was the Zodiac, and let's for a second assume he was, then you have to credit Graysmith with c- confirming that. Because there's never going to be a final confirmation. Oh, yeah, I'd say so. If it was him. If it was someone else, then he was wrong, and then I guess you have to reevaluate the way that he framed the story. I didn't read the books, I should point that out. Maybe yeah. his book goes into all the other suspects, now, too. Graysmith does spend a lot of time on the handwriting stuff. Yeah. You know? I'm saying he's a good investigator, but the way he wrote the book, if he framed it in a way that it has to be Arthur Lee Allen, right. and then it t- turns out maybe in 20 years it wasn't, we find out, then you have to kind of go back and be like, well, maybe he wrote this in a way yeah, yeah. he shouldn't have been just tunnel vision Was on one guy. Was trying to make it be this guy which I, several I think people try to yeah i think it was it's, <laughs> i don't know but i think it was because this movie told me for sure at least the way the movie portrays it just like jfk <laughs> well the thing about jfk is they did have to invent a lot of stuff right. to make it all work yeah, yeah. because then you're dealing with the federal government oh, you're not yeah. walking into police departments saying can i look at your files mm-hmm. It's upsetting how Graysmith and his work really expose the issues with the investigation. It isn't personal mistakes. It wasn't Toski's fault. It wasn't Armstrong's fault. It wasn't Narlo or Mullinax or any of the other cops. It was just the bullshit of a pre-information age. Jurisdiction, coordination, sharing of information. Yeah. 
was completely foreign in just the 60s be 70s. difficult to work with and make everything a pain in the ass and nothing will ever get done i don't even know how they did any of this shit in a pre-internet age Dude, it I know. seems like the internet had to be invented just to help catch serial killers or really smart criminals was, everything was like a lot of legwork it's very reminiscent of helter skelter yeah. and bugliosi and why there was such a fucking foot dragging affair to get to the point where they could arrest somebody for the manson murders because they just didn't have any experience with stuff like this they didn't understand that you needed to coordinate and talk and share openly because everyone's got that mindset of like well this is our case this is my caller yeah i know but that's normal cases that's the kind of shit you can say about your typical well that is the sad part the crimes of the century Uh, right the sad part about it all is like these people being territorial could be standing in the way of solving a crime and preventing more crimes to be fair that is not how it feels in this movie it's just more of unpreparedness right not grasping it not it wasn't anyone actually yeah. like standing in the way it was just that they weren't equipped for this right graysmith then takes up the mantle because he feels like he has to because no one else is that's this man he's a cartoonist who became obsessed yeah and then as the police have to move on uh-huh. and everyone else has to move on i gotta keep the case going I- i'm the lead investigator now essentially he is because right. no one else is investigating yeah. it <laughs> I think there were, as I said to you before we started recording, other people doing it too, Mm -hmm. but he's the best and the one that made the best case and found out the most stuff, and his theory makes the most sense and is closest to what the police thought, so he gets the book. But there were other people doing it too, because if you go down the rabbit hole of potential Zodiac suspects, Ted Cruz, (laughs) Matt's dad, (laughs) me, (laughs) yeah, Avery didn't want to write the book. So Graysmith is going to. However, it should be noted that at this point, when he first starts on his own, I would say his intentions are depicted as pure enough. Graysmith wants to solve the case to solve the case. Granted, it becomes a personal obsession, but it's not a personal pursuit of glory. Right. He's not looking for money or fame. Totally. Or anything Buzz, like that. attention. His obsession might become more of, I have to do this, more than thinking about the victims or anything like that, but... Still, I would say that he's not doing this as a glory hog or anything like that. He's able to learn that it's likely Zodiac knew Darlene Farron, who was murdered back on July 4th, 1969. And as soon as they started launching into this shit, I'm screaming at the TV. Yeah. He covets. And what does he covet? (laughs) What he sees. This is the Silence (laughs) of the Lambs. I'm like, holy shit. I didn't realize. Because the last time I watched Zodiac was probably a couple years ago. And it had probably been a, a minute since uh-huh. I had seen Silence of the Lambs, wasn't thinking about it. And then you're like, oh, yeah, the Silence of the Lambs method is a pretty interesting way to catch a serial killer. Because you start thinking, was it all about Darlene all along? And then some of the information that basically continues on throughout the rest of the movie, you're like, yeah. maybe this was a guy who was obsessed with this woman who had zero sexual interest in him, and he's a complete weirdo, we find out, <laughs> yeah. decides he wants to kill her, does not kill her first, practices, kills her, then decides to cover it up, I'm going to make this character of a serial killer, kill one more person, or two, three more, two mm-hmm. more, two or three more, depending, I guess he tried to kill Brian Hartnell at the Lake Berryessa, but he survives. So he kills another girl, he kills the cab driver. At that point, he thinks, that's enough. Yeah. They're not going to trace it back to me, me being the weirdo hanging around. 
Darlene. Is that possible? I think so. That it was all to cover up killing her? Well, that's or the at the one... very least, that killing her inspired him to get started yeah. and then he liked it? Well, the rest of the victims seemed random. Oh, they were definitely random. But it could be that if you're a serial killer, you have those murders in you and they got to come out. And sometimes you just fixate on someone in your life first and then you, you expand your circle. And then for some people, that's just random or some people, it's a certain type of woman or whatever. But yeah, I don't know. These are the type of episodes that don't make me feel great about like driving home late at night. I think you're all right. All right. Serial killer would pull, like try to do, and then they'd be like, oh, "Never mind." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if you had less hair on your they, back, they would just be like, "This guy is uh, He's not be- my kind of guy." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not victim material. He's been victimized enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the reason they decide that the killer must have known Darlene is because her family members received anonymous heavy breathing phone calls in different locations her brother her sister her parents whatever it was or maybe her husband i don't know 90 minutes after she was killed Mm -hmm. before it was even public knowledge before they even knew she was killed who was calling them all obviously the person that killed her well if it was a random killing he wouldn't know who she was or how to reach her family yeah yeah so that's where that comes in now again that's circumstantial evidence you have three people say they got anonymous phone calls is that true Probably, because why would they make that up? But that doesn't prove anything. That's not related to a murder, really. Right. Not necessarily. It probably is, but that's not, it's not proof of anything. But it's enough to go on at least a working theory that the killer knew Darlene. Some questions about Mike Majot, then. Wouldn't he recognize this person? It's One very think. unclear uh, yeah. how, what his relationship with Darlene actually was, and that is never explained in the movie. No. Was he someone that she knew well? Or was it someone that they were just hooking up for the first time? Was he a regular boyfriend, even though she was married? I, think I don't the know. The whole asking about is that your husband is supposed to be indicative that he doesn't really know the peripheral characters in her life? Probably. Yeah. Because they would have addressed that, I would think, right. if he would have been someone who would have recognized yeah, a yeah. person in her life. Agreed. I don't know. But it is weird, and the fact that Majot basically falls off the face of the earth, the only person who's seen the Zodiac, makes it weirder because they never really talk to him until the mm-hmm. end of the film. They can't find him. They yeah, can't find her The person sister talking either. to him is not any of our, our main heroes. No, but that guy is in that scene when Gyllenhaal's banging on the door, oh, yeah. and it's raining, right. and he doesn't let him in, but then Koteas does. He's the guy in a, like a cop uniform. That's right, yep. And then he's like worked his way up. Wow. I like the time progression Definitely, there. yep. So that's like some true detective shit. But yes, Majot is also suspicious. Not suspicious. I don't want to say that. He's a victim, obviously. But it's weird that he disappears. Her sister disappears. Darlene is the focus of most of the second part of the movie because they really fixate on the killer knowing her, but they can't find her sister. It is weird that her sister and her family don't really seem that interested in helping the police (laughs) at all. I know. Whatever Darlene's real life was like, I'd love to know. It seems like it was wild. (laughs) (laughs) Seems like it was its own movie. Yeah, I know. I was going to say. Hair was digitally added to the close-up of Jake Gyllenhaal's knuckles as he draws or holds letters. David Fincher felt that Gyllenhaal's hands were too hairless and pretty. This is insane. (laughs) In that same vein, and this one's a little bit more reasonable... In order to save time, Fincher decided to digitally add all of the blood in the murder scenes, mm-hmm. which I think is kind of obvious in the first one when he's shooting 
the woman in the driver's side, Darlene. Yeah. You can kind of tell it's not a squib or anything like that. Totally. It looks kind of not great, I frankly. Agree. Right. Because Graysmith has never known about Arthur Leon, we actually do spend some time with a couple of other potential suspects. The name that gets thrown around a few times is Rick Marshall, right. who is not portrayed at all in the movie. He's a name that yeah. Graysmith gets from an anonymous phone call that to his house. That phone call is insane. Some of the phone stuff with Graysmith in general, like, I don't know what the truth is to any of this stuff, but like that he was getting called fairly regularly with just the heavy breathing. Well, I'll tell you this. Those heavy breathing calls stopped after Arthur Lee Allen died I, I, in 1992. I, I did see that. <laughs> yeah, I think it says it at the end of the yeah, movie. Yeah. The reason he latches onto this phone call. Well, wouldn't you? <laughs> is, well, because of the, uh, the amount like of somebody, details. Somebody calling and saying, here's some names. Well, he's got names, he's got locations, he's got specific yeah. jobs, he's got a very specific and unique story about a film canister. It's almost like whenever Hannibal Lecter gives <laughs> the clue about the storage space, and I you're know. like, what is this now? Police informants accused Richard Marshall of being the Zodiac Killer, claiming that he privately hinted at being a murderer. Marshall lived in Riverside in 1966, so hmm, there's a connection there to go. Sherry Joe, in San Francisco in 1969 close to the scenes of the Bates and Stein murders. He was a silent film enthusiast and projectionist screening Segundo de Chamon's The Red Phantom, which is a name used by the author of a possible 1974 Zodiac letter. See, now the, I'm including information that's not in the movie. Okay. But just so you get an Good idea of who Rick Marshall is. There was all these letters. Some of them people think might be the Zodiac. My favorite are the letters that he wrote to the Chronicle, or he may have written to the Chronicle, that have nothing to do with the Zodiac, but yeah. they think it's him. Just weird complaints about stuff. Mm -hmm. And they're like, the way that this is written in the handwriting, they think it might be him, but he's writing about something else or whatever. Yep. We love letters. <laughs> Detective Ken Narlow said that Marshall makes good reading, but is not a very good suspect in my estimation, which completely contradicts what Ken Narlow says in the movie which is that he always thought Rick Marshall was the best suspect. <laughs> he actually says that. Yeah, yeah. Because he kind of has that moment with Donal Logue where he's right. like, what about Rick Marshall? And he's like, where'd you get that name? Yeah, <laughs> I know. They play the same game twice, but right. with a different cop. This time, yeah. I don't know. There's not really much to add about Rick Marshall because we don't see him and he doesn't actually factor directly into the movie, but he is discussed a lot. It was a person of interest at one point. Graysmith continues on with his own investigation profiled publicly in the Chronicle, and eventually gives a television interview about the book yeah. he's writing on the case. Much uh, to the chagrin of his lovely wife. Yeah, and I agree with her. Yeah. At a certain it's point, irresponsible. He's, he's acting recklessly yeah. since he has children, especially when there's phone calls coming to the house. Let's mm -hmm. just assume that's real. It's real in terms of the movie. So clearly something weird is happening, even if it's not the Zodiac. Yep. But for someone who is so obsessed with his own publicity... If the Zodiac was still alive, he knew who Robert Graysmith was and he knew what he looked like. That is real. Yeah. No matter if he was calling his house or not, I don't know. But if he was still alive at that point when Graysmith was interviewed and being in the newspaper, and his, I'm, I would guarantee the Zodiac knew who he was because he was obsessed with himself and his own publicity. Yeah. <laughs> he has that weak-ass argument with Melanie. He's like, he's not going to read... Herbert Kane or whatever that guy's name was. <laughs> As if like the Zodiac killer's looking at the newspaper, sees the word Zodiac as part of a headline, but then looks at the byline and it's like, no, 
Not him. <laughs> I'm not reading that trash. <laughs> Written by Matt Crosby. No thanks. <laughs> Just rips the newspaper yeah. in half. He's immediately canceling his subscription to the Chronicle. <laughs> He's chasing down leads. First Marshall, then people in Marshall's orbit. I don't really know. Talking to everyone he can. It does get to a little confusing witnesses, here. Witnesses, relatives of the victims, and the potential suspects. At one point, Toski is then demoted after being accused of forging a new Zodiac letter, one that mentions him by name. He it's was eventually weird. cleared. That's yeah. all we really know. I, mean, I don't know what that was about. Certainly the way that Totsky is portrayed in the movie, you can't envision this being done by him. But then they have his wife admit yeah. that he had written letters asking for himself to be put back into a column where he was a character or that something. That is a weird detail. I was reading the specifics yeah. of it, like the real-life version, and I thought that was very strange. Mm-hmm. That is very suspicious and almost as circumstantial as anything they had against him. That's true, yeah. Where you're like, okay. If he's only guilty of trying to keep the case alive in the public's mind, then yeah. I don't think it's really that big of a deal. But I don't know. Maybe I'm not seeing something of why this would be very bad. I guess it would potentially jeopardize the case. You would later. think, yeah. However, as I said, he was eventually cleared. So who knows? But Toski's disgrace, as temporary and ultimately meaningless as that may be, it's not the only fallout. Everyone becomes a victim. Graysmith begins receiving phone calls from someone breathing heavily, and as his obsession deepens, he loses his job, and Melanie leaves taking their children. He is literally sacrificing everything mm-hmm. for this quest. She asks him, is that more important than your family's safety? And he says, of course not. I don't think he thinks he's lying, but I don't know that I believe what he's saying. It should be obvious that your family's safety is more important, but I think it his actions feel that don't, way. Right. Feel, don't exactly. agree with that. He is obsessed, and obsession is sort of like addiction or something. It becomes oh, yeah. all-consuming. He's just going to keep chasing this. Paul Avery did not withdraw from working at the San Francisco Chronicle to live a life of reclusive obscurity, as the film kind of suggests. In the mid-1970s, he reported on the kidnapping of Patricia Hearst, and turned his reports into a book, The Voices of Guns, from 1976. Not a big fan of that title. He was also married with two daughters, a fact which was only briefly mentioned in the film. So not everything that accurate, then. But that character... Those are the things that fall under not important. Yeah. When you're talking about a historical story... Oh, I'm sorry, the the sweater was so important? I don't think the critics that were praising the film were thinking about the sweaters or the hairy knuckles. Yeah. They probably didn't even know about that right. shit. It was more just like what the public knows. They weren't changing it to make it more yeah, yeah, yeah. salacious. They weren't altering history. It no, wasn't like Inglorious Bastards. Given this, search. it's like trying to expand upon the theme of the movie, the obsession and the downfall of that. Connected in with Rick Marshall is a man named Bob Vaughn, who the anonymous caller keeps telling him to talk to, which is weird. Rather than just I say. Know. This is Rick Marshall that did it. Here's where he is. This is what you... He's like, you have to talk to this Bob Vaughn guy. These calls are weird that this would happen. I believe that the person on the phone thinks that they're telling the truth. I Mm -hmm. don't think this is a hoax or a lie. I just think people convince themselves of things based on weird shit they see or know about. So Go back to the bug episode. Whatever was going on with Rick Marshall and Bob Vaughn was maybe weird... Maybe there was something going on with this film canister. Yeah, there was I know. something he on let, that he, film that we said, shouldn't see. Hold on to this film canister for but don't me. Don't look in it. Yeah. 
kind of feels like something that might happen between us someday. The anonymous call. (laughs) Yeah. Hide this podcast. (laughs) The anonymous phone caller says that Rick Marshall filmed the killings and Mm -hmm. that's what's in there. I think that's very unlikely because there were two eyewitnesses that survived equipment like at that time. Neither of the survivors mentioned anything about. Yeah, right. But either way, this is an alley that Graysmith has got to go down, and it ends up being important because of the scene that they do with Charles Fleischer. It should be pointed out, for the sake of keeping this straight, as if we are David Fincher, all Bob Vaughn is is connected to Rick Marshall. He was never implicated, never a suspect, though he was a real person. This scene is a little misleading to people who maybe aren't grasping at what they're going for, which is that this is just supposed to be that Graysmith is now seeing the Zodiac everywhere. Mm-hmm. He's obsessed. He can't let it go. Making He's details it. fit his own narrative. Right. And it is one of the scarier scenes in the movie, For if sure. not the scariest. And it's definitely it's, the one that jumps out when you're thinking about it later. Definitely the highlight set piece of the second half of the movie. So it starts when they're upstairs. Graysmith is under the impression that this man, Rick Marshall, is the one who made these hand-drawn signs. Mm-hmm. He takes this sign, poster, over to Philip Baker Hall. He says, holy shit, this is the closest match we've ever had. Yeah, yeah. Which further undermines him, I guess. Right. He's not convinced. They say he's a drunk now, too. He's like, bring me more samples. Yeah. Because he's not 100%, but he's like, whoa, this is something. No one else you've ever brought me is close to the handwriting match. So there's that. But then Vaughn reveals it was he who made the posters. Mm Mm-hmm. So if this was a movie where anything could happen and not based on reality, you would think, oh, this is the killer now. He's just giving himself away. But this is actually reality. All it really means is that Graysmith has been spinning his tires wasting time. This Rick Marshall thing is a dead end. By the way, Bob Vaughn lumbers, quote unquote, too. It's all an illusion, though. There isn't any real danger. We know that. We have to know that on some level. Graysmith has to survive to write two books on the Zodiac. And by the (laughs) way, he doesn't claim to have been in the basement with the Zodiac killer. So we know that this isn't actually going anywhere. But the scene is still excellent exactly because of the things we know. It's not excellent because it's creepy and scary. That's cool and great. But it's excellent because it's this perspective from Graysmith where it's all in his head and it's overtaken him and you really understand what it's like to live in these shoes for a minute where just at the drop of a hat, he goes from this man he's never even heard of, Rick Marshall, to thinking, oh, wait, now this other guy said he drew the poster and now he's limping. Wait a minute. Lumbering. Out of nowhere, this is the suspect now. Right. For no reason, really. This whole meetup is weird. I get what happens with Graysmith and obviously he... He scares the shit out of himself. Right. And has to leave abruptly, but not really sure what all was going to be taken out of this interaction. I think he was just looking for Rick Marshall. Yeah. Finding out about him. Right. Where is he? What's going on? Did you ever see anything? Did he say anything? Whatever. You got to talk and yep. f- see what you pry loose. But you have to remember from Vaughn's perspective, there's probably nothing strange going on, although he does act strange a couple of times, but I think that's just part of the fun right and then i think at the end when he smiles creepily after gyllenhaal's run out of his front door i think that's supposed to be he knows what just happened he Uh knows that that guy just scared himself and he's like this fucking nut 
Because a lot of the times when Graysmith is on this trail, he's encountering people who have already been interviewed and already talked to people, right, right. already encountered other amateur sleuths, and already gone through this whole thing. Because later when he finally tracks down Darlene's sister, she's like, oh, yeah, you had that look. And he's like, what does that mean? She's like, ah, never mind. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that I've look met of, a few of your yeah, type. Like these yeah. people come in, like other people who are looking for her. Whenever he mentions Zodiac to what, several people in this film, they kind of just have this yeah. like, okay, yeah. What right. would f- what would end up being future true crime podcasters? Exactly. The original Studio One sheets I always kept for myself. Cheapo knockoffs like you brought today. I- End up tossing into the back alley. You live alone? Uh, most dangerous game ran in May. 69, so that would be about nine weeks before the first Zodiac letter, correct? Uh, yeah. Do you think he saw the film in our theater and was inspired? Are you sure there's nobody else in the house? Would you like to go upstairs and check? No. Thank you. Thanks for everything. You're welcome. Smith. It's kind of reminiscent, though, of the scene with Skarsgård and the girl with the dragon tattoo. I know. Tattoo. It always because comes he up. goes down, he follows him into the yep, basement. I know. Even though he's starting to get freaked out. He's like, you have a basement. Yeah, that was the other big thing. Right. I didn't even get into that. They f- think that the killer has a basement. And not a lot of houses in California have basements. Although somehow Vaughn and Alan yeah. were involved with basements. Right. Okay. I'm thinking, I don't even think Vaughn actually says come down to the basement it's a weird basement to exist in any house you coming you know type thing yeah i know it's It's buffalo bill-esque but it's very big but organized like like it's a a library or something but a shitty or like a yeah some sort of like big warehouse yeah when graysmith finally tracks down darlene's sister linda played by clea duvall she's in prison whoa it's after the conversation with her when she suddenly remembers the name of the creepy guy who had been hanging around her sister in the time leading up to her murder, it's Lee. That's what she says. This is significant because Arthur Lee Allen has already told us that he goes by Lee and no one ever calls him Arthur. 
Well, there you go. What's this about? Zodiac. Vegas. You got the look? What look? I, I didn't mean anything. Tell me about this painting party. I told the cops about that so long ago. Mm. Darlene always had a lot of boys around, even though she was married. This one guy was weird, though. He um, used to bring her presents from Tijuana. And I don't know why she was friends with him. She once told me he'd killed somebody. Really? Yeah, I think maybe when he was in the service. Navy? I think so. Was he into movies? Was he a movie buff? I can tell you that he was not into people. The party Darlene threw, people were supposed to just show up and drink beer and help paint, but this guy showed up in a suit and just sat in a chair all by himself all night long, didn't talk to anyone. And Darlene told me to stay away from him. She was scared of him. And a couple weeks later, she was dead. Sorry. Do you remember his name? Um, I mean, it was short, like a nickname, like Stan. Rick? No, I don't think so. Are you sure? Yeah. How can you be sure? It's a long time ago. Think hard. I am thinking hard. It was Rick. No, it wasn't. It was Rick, it was Rick Marshall. No. Just say it. It wasn't Rick. So the th- reason why this is so confusing is because Graysmith stops dead in his tracks and this movie is three hours long almost. So you're thinking, <laughs> wait a minute, did he already talk about Alan? Does he know about Alan? Is Alan one of his suspects? Yeah, that part is tough. Because the way he acts, it's as if he already knew who that was. But all he's going by is remembering seeing the name Lee in one of the f- documents. I know. But we as the viewer have had so much exposure to this guy. So he's connecting Arthur Lee Allen from the theory that he had to have known Darlene. That's all he's going on right now. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, Cleo Duvall's mentioning Lee, and he's like, wait a minute, where have I seen that? Contextually to this point, Graysmith has been largely kept out of the Allen stuff. He was the police's suspect, and even though he's been granted unusual amounts of access, as boxes and boxes of files, so oh, yeah. now it feels like the movie's telling us Graysmith has arrived at this suspect on his own, just like Toski and Armstrong back in the day. Eventually, he gets his hands on Alan's license, which confirms his birthday, which you have to go back and remember why that's a big deal. And now I can finally go back to my other page of notes. Oh, because boy. Because this is really turning it in my own investigation here. Graysmith starts putting this all together. A lot of it's broken up over time, but the long and short of it is this. Alan lived close to to Darlene Farron and probably knew her. And then even more chillingly, he discovers that Alan's birthday matches the one the Zodiac gave when he spoke to one of Marvin Belli's maids. So let's go back and tear this apart. What's wrong with this in my mind? Well, in one of the ciphers, he says it wasn't him on TV. Now, does that mean it was never him that talked to Marvin Belli? I can't remember the details of every letter he ever sent. 
I think the working knowledge seems to be that some of the interactions with Belli were real, but okay. the person calling in on the TV show was not right. the Zodiac. That's the only way you can make this work. Otherwise, you would think, all right, well, he's basing this all off of a guy that we think is not actually the Zodiac. Who cares what this guy on the phone said his birthday was? But I guess you have to believe that at some point the Zodiac was actually talking to Melvin Bella. I don't know. Who knows? Hard to say. Well, impossible. Impossible <laughs> to say. The phone records weren't that good back then. No. They weren't able to trace all this they stuff. Ping the cell phone tower. <laughs> yeah. That is one thing that it seems like continues to be a lesson. The stuff that does get used as evidence and to rule things out. A lot of unreliable shit. <laughs> cell phones time. now. Yeah. It's cell phones now. Yeah. How did we ever catch people before we had a cum database, a fingerprint <laughs> fingerprint database, DNA yeah. database, and the internet, and cell phones? Mm -hmm. Graysmith has brought what he learned to Toski, who, while initially being beyond annoyed, can't help but kind of get sucked back in. However, all of this still is very circumstantial. It's just that he got to the same place that Toski did, so it feels right. The circumstantial evidence continues to mount against Arthur Lee Allen. The physical evidence just isn't there. Fingerprints and handwriting samples do not implicate him, but it's clear that we just cannot trust the evidence anymore. Absolutely. So they're basing this off of a fingerprint they pulled out of Stein's cab. First of all, I guess we can debate whether or not the Zodiac really killed Stein. I'm going to go ahead and say he did because of the letters with the shirt pieces. Sure. But it could have been someone else. But let's say he did. The fingerprint was in blood, which means if it wasn't the killers and it wasn't the victims, it would have had to have been one of the police or a reporter or somebody. Mm -hmm. They never actually matched it to anyone, which makes people think it's the killers, but it didn't match Arthur Lee Allen. Now, famously, and as is brought up many, many times in the movie, he yes. was wearing gloves but then decided to take them off. The only thing I can think of is Just maybe the gloves move. were yeah. somehow preventing him from cutting the shirt the way he wanted. Maybe he literally... I don't know, because then if he touched his shirt in any way, you would think... It does seem like unnecessarily sloppy. It also seems weird that they didn't figure out that he cut his shirt right. until they got pieces of it. That's because a good point, they're like, yeah. Because they'd go through that whole thing of like, why did he get in the front seat? Why is he doing this? Why did he do that? He already had the money. He could have got the wallet from the back seat. This is before they even know it's a Zodiac. They don't notice the victim's shirt is completely ripped. Like, or, what? Yeah. Well, an oversight by the crime scene investigation team. Toski spends the whole film mooching food, animal crackers, sandwiches from those around him. When Graysmith presents the solution at the diner in the film's climax, Toski pays for both of their meals. You would think that potentially this is an indication that maybe he's pleased or impressed or mm -hmm. something. It's, it's saying something. Yeah. Doing that is deliberate. Right. On the surface, he's angry. He reacts to Graysmith continually how he thinks he should. But deep down, it seems like this case eats at him, too. And just like this newspaper cartoonist, he just can't escape it. If it went to trial, all the defense would have to do is call Sherwood to the stand. And there was no way of getting Allen into court in the first place? Because there was no evidence, Robert. What do you mean there's no evidence? You have him seen with the ciphers, the military boot prints, the same size shoes and gloves, the most dangerous game, the Zodiac watch, the background with school children, the, the misspellings of Christmas, the bloody knife. All circumstantial. Paul Stein's shirt, his wallet, his keys. We should have found one of those things in that trailer. We didn't. That's the tr Okay. 
Catherine Allen states that Lee cleaned out his trailer on Friday after work and moved it to Santa Rosa on Saturday, August 7th, 1971. You interviewed him at the refinery on August 4th. Yeah. So he's cleaning out his trailer. He's moving it to a different county 48 hours after you interviewed him. Okay. Okay. Look at this stuff side by side. Okay. Um, Arthur Lee Allen and, and the Zodiac, their timelines. When was the first murder in Vallejo? Christmas 1968. Eight months before that, Alan is fired for molesting his students and his family discovers that he's a pedophile. Now, when do the letters begin? July 69. After the murder of Darlene Farron. And they continue until you go to see him at work. Now, after that, do any of the letters contain swatches of Paul Stein's shirt? No, because he dumped them because he got scared because he knew that you were onto him. So when's the next letter from Zodiac? Not until January of 1974. He is silent for three years. Then in 74, he feels comfortable again because everybody's moved off Alan as a suspect. And what do we get? Three new letters from Zodiac in January, May, and July in 74. But then the letters stop. What happens to Alan? He's arrested. January 1975, they send him to a Tascadero. We don't get another letter from Zodiac the entire time he's there. When is he released? August 77. Alan gets out, he types you an apology, and then what? We get our first new Zodiac letter in four years. Okay. Zodiac had to have known Darlene Farron, right? Yes, because of the phone calls on the night of her murder. Because of the Vallejo file, we know that Darlene knew a man named Lee? Yes. So all coincidence aside, Robert, how can you be sure that Lee Allen is a Lee from this file? Now, Vallejo is a small town, but it's not that small. How do you put the two of them together? This is a case that's covered both Northern and Southern California, with victims and suspects spread over hundreds of miles. Would you agree? Yes. Darlene Farron worked at the Vallejo House of Pancakes on the corner of Tennessee and Carroll. Arthur Lee Allen lived in his mother's basement on Fresno Street door to door, that is less than 50 yards. Is that true? I've walked it. Jesus Christ. So? The prince. The handwriting. I'm not asking you as a cop. But I am a cop. I can't prove this. Just because you can't prove it doesn't mean it's not true. Easy, dirty, Harry. Finish the book. December 20th, 1983. So, I joked before, but now I am on the planet. Oh. Vallejo, California. Graysmith tracks Allen to an Ace Hardware store where he is employed as a sales clerk. The two men stare at each other before Graysmith leaves. Yeah, that's a weird interaction. The movie is definitely playing it as if there is slight recognition on Allen's face, which ties in with what I was saying. Definitely. And I think the movie's saying the same thing. Right. If the Zodiac Killer was alive, and if it's Allen, he would know for sure who Graysmith was. Yep. Maybe it took him a couple seconds to recognize him, but he knew. That's what the movie's saying. Obviously, there's some editorial license when you're sure. depicting how someone's face looked in a <laughs> moment right. that happened. And I'm sure, since Graysmith himself is convinced that it was Alan, he probably says that uh, he saw some recognition. <laughs> right. 
Melanie's words about him going on TV come back a little bit into your head, like, eh, okay. It's a weird scene for a lot of reasons, but primarily two things jumped out at me. First of all, Lee is wearing a name tag where Lee is spelled L-E-E, which is completely different from how it's spelled the rest of the movie. Right, And true. in real life. <laughs> That's not how it's spelled in his, his real name. So, okay. Well, that was just an Ace Hardware error. Right. I did see somebody mention that online, and I'm like, yeah, but why do you have to make an error? <laughs> like, that doesn't seem real to me. But then, at the beginning of the scene, the words come on the screen, December 20th, 1983. For some reason... When Graysmith approaches him, Alan is looking at a calendar that says February 1980, and it is very big and prominent. Mm-hmm. The kind of thing that I just do not feel like Fincher would miss, especially he's not afraid to digitally change something. What is that? Did he just miss that it says February 1980? That seems like a huge thing. It was not little. In the scene, it's like a normal calendar, but it's right there. Well, I, I, I don't, don't know. I don't know. What's accomplished by... Nothing. Yeah. It's just a weird scene, and I don't understand it. Oh, that's a good point, yeah. But I guess it's real. I guess it's based off of what Graysmith really did, although no one can Confirm prove that. that. Yeah. <laughs> by the way, Gyllenhaal and Lynch played father and son in Bubble Boy, in case you were wondering. Wow. So, uh, reunion. reunion just yeah. in this brief moment. <laughs> Eight years later in 91, after Graysmith's book is finally published and has become a bestseller, Mike Majot resurfaces this time portrayed older by Jimmy Simpson, and he identifies Arthur Lee Allen from a police mugshot. It's clear that it's been a rough time One would for think. Mike. Yeah, understandably so. He was fucked up, too. I mean, he got shot a bunch of times, yeah, and yeah. he witnessed this girl get murdered, and it was probably the most horrifying Hard to come back thing from that. you could imagine. No doubt. Terrified that he's going to be found by this guy who he saw his face, probably. Yeah. The movie ends as it began, with Mike Majot. Yep. And then words appear on the screen. Following Mike Majot's identification of Arthur Lee Allen, authorities scheduled a meeting to discuss charging him with the murders. Allen suffered a fatal heart attack before this meeting could take place. In 2002, a partial DNA profile that did not match Allen was developed from a 33-year-old Zodiac envelope Investigators in San Francisco and Vallejo refused to rule out Allen as a suspect on the basis of this test. In 2004, the San Francisco Police Department deactivated their Zodiac investigation, although, as I noted at the beginning, it was reactivated just around the time of this movie coming out. Today, the case remains open in Napa County, Solano County, and the city of Vallejo, where Arthur Lee Allen is still mm. the prime and only suspect. I wonder how much active investigation it's getting in those counties. They call their detectives inspectors in San Francisco. I don't know if you noticed that, but that is real and accurate and annoying. (laughs) Inspector David Toski. It is pretentious. Retired from the San Francisco Police Department in 1989. He was cleared of all charges that he wrote the 1978 Zodiac letter. Paul Avery passed away on December 10th, 2000 of pulmonary emphysema. He was 66. His ashes were scattered by his family in San Francisco Bay. I think at the time of the film, Toski was still alive. He is no longer alive. Robert Graysmith lives in San Francisco and enjoys a healthy relationship with his children. He claims he has not received a single anonymous phone call since Alan's death. But again, you can't really prove any of that Mm -hmm. at this point. What are your final Zodiac thoughts? And I'm not talking about the movie. I'm talking about the real case. Do you have any about it? Do you care? 
most of the information that I have about this case is from this movie. Right, and I would say for me too, but in doing the research, that led me into some different rabbit holes. And I'm obsessed with some of these suspects now because I'm like, this is the weirdest thing I've ever heard, some of these stories. There's a ton of shady characters somehow tangentially involved in all this shit. Yeah, and they may not even be involved in anything to do with the case, but people latch onto them because they're weirdos that match up time. Yeah, yeah. Like they were in these areas or something. At this point in 2023, I'm tempted to say that we won't ever know for sure what happened, but with the advancements in different kinds of forensic technology and all these different things and the fact that people are obsessed with this stuff still, it's possible that something will happen. It gets less and less likely at all times because people die, people get old. Anyone who might have information, you know, they could be long gone, but it's possible because of the film and all of the strong circumstantial evidence, which seems legitimate, I'm going to go ahead and say that I think it was probably Arthur Lee Allen, but that's based really not on much other than just what it, other people have already done. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of shit that is crazy to just be a coincidence. I would think so, yeah. yeah. The fact that, and let's just assume that they're telling the truth in the movie, the mm-hmm. fact that Graysmith got there without ever hearing about him on his own, just like Toski and Armstrong did earlier. There's something to that. Yeah, that feels too weird to just happen based on nothing. The film is immersive and detailed, chock full of facts and nuggets and little tidbits, all designed to drive you crazy. You end up feeling like Graysmith or Toski or Avery or any of the others. Exhausted, yeah, worn down. Worn down, exhausted, so close, yet so far. You're never going to win. This movie would have done so much better if it was released a decade later. If this movie came out in 2017, it would have been big. Oh, yeah. Because the true crime crime stuff fad had increased. We're kind of coming out of a true crime culture now. I still think like the docs and stuff are popular. Yeah. You don't hear as much about all the different podcasts, although I guess they're still out there and popular. Yeah. Serial and other podcasts really had a huge impact on us. We mentioned Serial constantly throughout the first year or two of this podcast <laughs> it was just such a fun cultural reference point to like just always bring up and kind of goof on yeah it was cool how many times things from that story would relate to other things but yeah. also yeah it was a cultural touchstone right kind of feels like one of the last ones yeah it harkens back to the monoculture yeah. in a way that most things don't now because not enough people watch the same things or whatever But Zodiac as a film is a reminder of why we're so interested in all of this macabre shit Mm -hmm. in the first place. Yes, there are sickos who love the blood and the gore and the details of that, but it it becomes a puzzle, and humans love puzzles. And what better puzzle is the fucking Zodiac who sent literal puzzles in the mail? Yeah. This is like a dream for a true crime obsessive because there's enough out there for us to do (laughs) right because a lot of these cases there's not enough it's all behind the police barricade yeah the public doesn't know a lot of it but the zodiac stuff was so public and there's puzzles (laughs) (laughs) so much shit to sift through yeah well if you've got a hell of a hook with the puzzles no recommendations this week we're gonna read a quick email just because i don't want it to wait any longer even though we are really over time right now but i don't want 
you guys to wait when you send us things. All right. All right. All right, you go ahead. You go ahead, you keep it secret. But you remember this. When you control the mail, you control information. This week's email comes from Theodore, who we've heard from before, friend of the show. He says, hi, Zach and Matt. Thanks, as always, for sharing your love of film. Are you guys into any of these subgenres? And if so, what are some of your favorites? Classic Hollywood noir, French New Wave, John Waters movies. Thanks, Theodore. I like a director counts as subgenre. Well, with certain directors, I think it kind of does. And John yeah. Waters, I would say, probably does. Okay. David Lynch? Yeah. Okay. John Waters is kind of a no for me. I just haven't spent a lot of time. I've probably movies. only seen four, three or four of his movies, and a couple of them were his most mainstream, like Hairspray and things like that. But I did watch Female Trouble on mm-hmm. the Criterion Collection, and I think I started Multiple Maniacs, and I've seen parts of Pink Flamingos. It's not really for me either. That's the easiest one to kind of dismiss. I appreciate it. I understand the significance of it. I get why guys like John Waters are important. You need people like this to push the envelopes into all directions at all times so that the things that you may relate to more can get through too. You need those people to push through, but it's not for us, I don't think. Yeah. For classic Hollywood noirs, I like a lot of the big ones. I like the classic stuff. Asphalt Jungle. Oh, yeah. Asphalt Jungle is great. I don't even... I can't even remember a lot of the ones I've watched. I like a lot of the Veronica Lake movies, The I Glass like, Key, um, and oh, yeah. the I, ones that led into some of the Coen Brothers stuff. I love Gilda. I like Laura. Love Laura. One that I really found myself loving was Out of the Past. Out of the Past is great. Yeah. considered one of the best ones. I just bought a new... It's new to Blu-rays on a new movie. That is considered a really good one with Barbara Stanwyck called Sorry, Wrong Number which I'm excited to check out. Okay. Yeah, I like plenty of them. It's hard to think off the top of my head what the best ones or favorite ones would be, but Matt has taken the opportunity to actually do a little research, and the names he's shouting out are all winners as far as I'm concerned. Oh, yeah. French New Wave. For as much as French New Wave is so influential and such a thing that warped the culture and changed film... I'm not that much of a, a student of. I like the John Luke Godard good stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, I like Godard. I like. I like Breathless. I, I love Contempt. I had a hard time getting into Melville, which I've done a people little... adore. Okay, I don't. I haven't spent much considered time considered a, a legendary guy. I probably need to give that more of an opportunity. Truffaut. Truffaut, I've done a little bit. I've seen a few of his movies. Yeah. Not a big fan. Uh-huh. That's probably controversial. I know I'm not the only one. I think Tarantino hates Jules and Jim, too, maybe. One of those guys. I, I thought Jules and Jim was not that great. And I think that that's sometimes the obstacle for people getting into older films is they feel obligated to have to like everything because it's already established. Well, Truffaut just like did not connect with me. That hasn't stopped me from buying more of his movies. Yeah, And I'm eventually going to watch them, but... Yeah, I don't know. I don't. Yeah. Did I don't you know watch the, 400 Blows? I, I, I watched that in college. Okay, in film that one class. is always touted out there as one of the best ones. I started it, haven't finished it. <laughs> it's not even that long. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. Some of my favorite noirs we didn't mention. I really like Double Indemnity. Oh, yeah. 
I guess it's kind of hard to say what you consider a noir, but I like leave her to heaven. I like, see, now I'm getting into the whole thing is like, do these count? Some of them? I don't know. I like a place in the sun. I don't know if that really counts. Some of those okay. more like overly dramatic Elizabeth Taylor type movies, I guess they don't necessarily count. I don't know. It all counts. <laughs> it's all going in. Yeah, French to Wave, I don't know. Does Clouseau count? I like him. And who was the guy that did Umbrellas of... Oh, Demi? Oh, yeah, Jacques Demi. Yeah. I haven't watched any of movies by him. Same. I do have that box set, though. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's the thing. I just have so much shit that it's kind of embarrassing, and I, there's no way I'm ever going to watch all this stuff, even though it's not great to admit that out loud, but you have to be realistic at a certain point. There's Some of this stuff is never going to get watched. Yeah, yeah. Way too much now, and there's always going to be more. I, yeah, I mean, I feel like I've seen a million movies, but when we start going down some of these certain avenues, I'm like, man, there's just so much stuff that's out there unexplored for me. A couple of years ago, during the start of the pandemic, I watched about a hundred and what was it, fifty Criterion's in a month. Wow, four or five movies a day, generally. No wonder you don't want to watch movies anymore. I know. I think I went overboard during yeah. the first couple of years on Letterboxd. Anyway, a lot of those movies blurred together, but. I did like Detour, which is kind of an obscure one that's on Criterion. I don't really think Diabolique counts as a French new wave, but I like Clouseau a lot. He did that movie with Brigitte Bardot, La Verité, which mm-hmm. I love a lot. Yeah, that's a cool movie. I feel like I'm, we're forgetting some obvious film noirs, but I'm I don't know. We did fried. pretty good. This is, yeah. <laughs> this is like the most we've ever done. For Thanks for podcast. the email, Theodore. Yeah, I talk to Theodore now yeah. a lot. He's so. a top listener. <laughs> You're all top listeners. Folks, <laughs> follow the show on Twitter at Greatest Pod. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you get a chance or have not already done so. Thank you so much for listening and sticking with us for this super long episode. I knew it was going to be long. I killed myself with this research. I nice think, job. We appreciate eh, it. I think I was a little more annoying than usual in this episode but i really was trying to go fast yeah, you're passionate about it well i'm trying to also plow through it because matt has like literally been falling asleep the entire episode i'm very tired <laughs> you're always tired and i'm never tired now yeah i don't know what happened it'll be four in the morning later and i i won't be sleeping something's really messed up with me I, i'm kind of worried actually yeah you anyway need to take it easy folks you're literally friggin jake gyllenhaal from this movie letterboxd I'm probably not going to be on it after this year, but Zach1983, Matt Crosby, I haven't even been logging the stuff for the podcast, but I'm still hopeful that I'll catch back up at some point. Okay. Maybe you'll be rejuvenated. By Barbenheimer. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, listener requests coming up next two episodes. We'll get back into it. Like I said, Kevin, you might have to wait a minute. But other than that, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Thrown like a star in my vice if I opened my eyes to take a peek To find that I was by the sea gazing with tranquility Just then when the hurdy gurdy man came singing songs of love Then when the hurdy gurdy man came singing songs of Good, 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 good
means this guy this is not my kind of guy <laughs> 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 